Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. You're rocking with the most awesome The Carl Nelson Show. And good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for kickstarting your week with us again. Later, black politics expert Dr. James Taylor will return to our classroom. Dr. Taylor will reflect on today's anniversary of 9-11. Dr. Taylor will also discuss uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's stance on reparations, reviewing reparations fight from 1963 to 2023. But before we hear from Dr. Taylor, Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement, and Elmer Geronimo Pratt gun founder Nick Bazell will preview this weekend's Building Power Summit. But to get us started this morning, Baltimore author David Miller is here. Good morning, David. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Carl, and to the listening audience. How y'all doing? We're doing excellent today, David. Since your first time uh, on the trip here, uh, please tell us, give us a little bit about your background before we start discussing uh, your book and also the, your Rites of Passage program. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. And top of the morning to, to everyone. So uh, my name is David Miller, you know, native of uh, of Baltimore. And my life um, um, was extremely inspired by an incident that happened to me uh, when I was in college. I was at Morgan State. My best friend was at Morehouse. It was the summer of 1989. Three guys tried to rob us at gunpoint. We didn't have the money they wanted, so they started shooting. I lived, and my best friend died. His name was Donald Bentley. And that particular incident really changed uh, my life course. And as, and as a result of that early uh, traumatic experience, I decided that I wanted to figure out ways to become a change agent in the lives of, um, of black males. And so uh, through some intense uh, personal development work. My parents had the foresight, even back in in '89, to get me into counseling to address, you know, some of those some of those challenges that I was having. As a result of that, um, I started off on a quest to specifically design programs and services for Black males that really focused on made three major areas: addressing anger, decision making, and impulse control. And several years later, I published uh, Dare to be King, What if the Prince Lives, a survival workbook for African-American males. Because, Carl, I believe that one of the biggest challenges we have in the black community is we don't teach our children that it is their birthright to be great. And and because of that, we see some of uh, the fallout in community because we don't start our children off from um, from the cradle, teaching them that it is their birthright to be successful, and they have a they have a historical and a moral obligation to uh, take advantage of all that this society has to offer. Wow, it's interesting that you would say that because just one. Why- 
with Coco Gauff uh, uh, winning the, the Wimble uh, Wimbledon, winning uh, actually the U.S. Open in New York. And, and she, she talked about the fact about her parents. Uh, her dad told her that she, she could achieve anything that she, that she wanted. You know, if she can uh, uh, think about it, she can achieve it. And she said that's what kept her going because there's nothing impossible. And it just reminded me of what you just said about teaching our young people. So, so what was the next step after you, after you figured that out? What, what did you do from there? Hey, brother, it's been a, it's been a long road because I've actually been doing this work. Um, this has literally been my life's work outside of working for Mayor Kurt Smoke in the early '90s through his Baltimore uh, Baltimore Reads campaign. When I first, you know, graduated from college, I did some some teaching in West Baltimore. You know, I launched I launched a company to again specifically uh, focus on the needs and concerns. Are black males. And one of the, again, another sort of foundational thing for me was being introduced to rites of passage as a, not necessarily as a program, but more of a, uh, of, of a lifestyle that if we want um, children to be successful, we have to socialize them in ways where one, they understand that everything that this world has to offer is their birthright. And then, and number two, that there are forces and elements in this society that particularly if you are a uh, black in America don't necessarily want you to succeed. So, you know, meeting Jawanza, reading Dr. Jawanza Kajufu at 1985 was groundbreaking. And then meeting brothers like, uh, you know, Richard Rowe and, and, and Imam Earl El Amin and others in Baltimore that were just starting to do, rites of passage programming and then being able to meet people like Paul Hill in Cleveland, Ohio, and Baba Hannibal Freak, who was, you know, in between uh, Alabama and Chicago was really foundational. And so we launched, I, I became a member of the Baltimore rites of passage uh, collective early on uh, as they were doing um, African centered rites of passage work, Baba Durrell, Kofi Kennan, who's an ancestor now, Baba Ademola Ekolona, and a number of other great uh, men and women helped introduce me to rites of passage. And I've picked up the mantle and have continued, um, you know, to do that work because, Carl, I really believe that while we focus so much energy on uh, who, a who the police chief is or who the school superintendent is, we know, based on the history of rites of passage that emanates uh, in the U.S. from the early 1960s, as part of the Black Power movement, that folks were doing rites of passage programming in schools, in the basement of churches, um, as part of you know the um, the um, African-centered school movement. The African-centered school movement, along with uh, rites of passage, were, were some of the key offerings that really helped to liberate the minds and hearts of uh, of young people and their parents. And so I just did what I was supposed to do and pick up the mantle from, from many of our ancestors. Wow. So how, what age do you think we should start these rites of passage? What age do you think a young, young man can comprehend what's going on? So, so ideally, we need to start um, as young as elementary school with what I would call sort of pre-rites, and that's really introducing you know, the families to what rites of passage looks like, 
what does living an African-centered you know, lifestyle look like? What are some of the uh, behaviors that we want to see in young people? Um, historically, we have really started most of our rights work in, in middle school. Again, we're, we're sort of, you know, that early pre-rights. But, but as we move from middle school to high school, you know, really getting into um, more of the serious uh, life skills preparation, uh, beginning to uh, introduce young people to the culture. And again, I think that a lot of that begins in elementary and middle school, introducing young people to dance, introducing young people to, uh, to African music, to African languages, uh, introducing people to, um, you know, heroes and sheroes, introducing young people to um, geography. I think we do a horrible job of not just teaching, quote unquote, black history, but also, um, you know, African history and, and geography. If you ask most young people and even adults, you know, even even many adults, if you ask them to name 10 countries on the continent of Africa, most of them would really struggle because that's not something that we have sort of inculcated in our homes and in our community based institutions. And we definitely know that is not going to happen in school. But that early pre-rights, because rights of passage, Carl, is not just for the young person. It's also to re-socialize the parents. Will, let me ask this. Why isn't that taught by the parents? You know, the Jewish community, they have their bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah for coming out and quinceanera for, in the Hispanic community. Why, why don't we... I guess it is in the African community, but not in the African-American community. Why isn't that taught? Well, I mean, I mean, again, there's a, you know, there are a number of, of schools of thought, you know, one, I just think that um, there are just so many different ideas and concepts um, floating around in our community in terms of how we should socialize children and, and, and what is the role of the adults. But for me, Carl, if we really want to get serious about addressing many of the challenges in our community, there should be some standards in terms of how we how we raise children and what are those what are those attributes that we want our children to have to grow up to be healthy and safe and to be able to give back to their community more than they than they take away. I mean, I think it's 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 critical it's a critical you know conversation particularly when we look at what is happening to young people at the community level and what is happening in schools. And then another piece called that I think is critically important is understanding the role of, uh, of culture and the impact of, uh, of cultural pride, you know, feeling, feeling proud to be black, understanding, you know, what it means to be black, because oftentimes um, when you look at um, images even even now in the modern era, we still see too many images and depictions uh, that look at black folk from a deficit model versus a strength perspective. Twelve after the top there, just waking up, folks. I guess it's David Miller out of Baltimore. He's an author, and also he's discussing. We're discussing this morning rites of passage. And my question to him before just moments ago is why why don't the parents start the rites of passage? And obviously, there's a void there. So, David, how do we how do we how do we get past that 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 where you know the parents know nothing about uh, rites of passage or a- African history, so they can't teach their young people. So then, how do we convince them that this is something 
they they should have had done and and they should pass down to their children how do we do that great question carl and um you know one radical community education radical community education in terms of you know what are the benefits of of rites of passage again what are the benefits of making sure that um that you live in a household that represents, you know, black excellence. One of, one of the things that I remember that was so groundbreaking about um, the Cosby show, regardless of, you know, how you feel about Bill Cosby, but when you, when we sat down and we watched the Cosby show and you entered the front door of the Hextable home, you understood what black excellence meant. You, you understood what, you understood representations of black excellence from the ways in which you know, Cliff and Claire talk to their children, but even the art on the wall by Jacob Lawrence or Ramir Bearden, um, the the fact that that uh, Cliff would always adorn HBCU sweatshirts. You know, so this is the this is how we begin to institutionalize the culture, if we will. That's number one. Number two, during our early days of of of, of right to passage programming, I tell you what, hold, hold number two right there, David. We got to take a short break here. Hold that number two, and I'll let you get to expound on that when we get back. But we got to take our first look at the traffic and weather. Sorry to interrupt you, folks. You want to join this conversation with David Miller? We're talking about rights of passage. Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six. Your phone calls in four minutes in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB and the DMV run FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty. W-O-L or info. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour. Thanks for waking up with us this morning. Our guest is Baltimore author uh, uh, David Miller. And David is the author of a book, several books, by the way, but Dare to be King. So talking about rites of passage. So he's giving us a countdown. So David, I'll let you continue your countdown. So no, thanks, Carl. And to, and to the second point, you know, first in terms of how do we inculcate the culture? How do we begin to teach uh, black children and re-educate black parents on the importance of uh, the role of culture and cultural pride. And I gave a reference to um, the Cosby show and how we would sit down and watch the show. And you, you could see uh, black excellence emanating just by walking through the, the Cosby household. The second thing I think that we have to understand is, you know, this is not new for us. You know, back in the 60s, when you look at some of the work uh, through Simba Namalaka Wachanga, and United Simba, uh, which was some of the work done by Dr. Manalana Karanga, they were doing community-based rites of passage programming in East Oakland and in L.A. to begin this re-socialization process, you know, of black youth. Many of the earliest rites of passage programs were housed in the basement of a church or in a community center. When I started with, you know, the Baltimore Rites of Passage Collective over 30 years ago, we were using space, you know, donated by a church in East Baltimore. And so, you know, these are things that I think that we have to do if we're serious about changing um, many of the challenges that we're seeing, particularly as it relates to black youth. Do you think if they went, many of our youngsters went through this rites of passage, we wouldn't have the problems we're having now with with some of our young people, especially in the Baltimore area, since that's where you're located? Uh, yeah, and and I and I would and I would also say across the country, and I would also I would also add that um, I went through 
I was I was a pretty wild teenager growing up in Baltimore. Even though I had two uh, amazing parents, uh, I was pretty wild. You know, I got introduced to something called MB2020, and I know you know nothing about that call or Richard's Wild Irish Rose Wine as a teenager. So I started drinking as a teenager, and had I been exposed to um, maybe if I had been exposed to a rites of passage program at 15, 16 years of age, I wouldn't have started smoking weed and I wouldn't have started drinking. I actually went through my adult rites of passage initiation. I was 28 years old. And even even as a 28-year-old, you know, newly married black man going through um, uh, what's called the egg bay. Uh, our rights of passage, adult male rights of passage program uh, in Baltimore. It made me a better husband. It made me a better man. It, it, it. Next to being married and having children, going through an adult rights initiation literally changed my life. And so we know that it works. And even when you look at, you know, some of the uh, academic research, I just wrote an article looking at African-centered social work practices where I highlighted using rites of passage programming as a tool to address the trauma and the challenges of black male youth. All right. It's 24 at the top there. Brother Haki's joining us from Baltimore. He has a question for you. He's online too. Good morning, Brother Haki. I'm with David Miller. Yes. Uh, greetings to you, my brother. It's good to hear you, of course, and lots of uh, wisdom expressed. Um, uh, and thank you, Brother Carl, uh, for this conversation. Uh, my question, you know, I mean, Baltimore, brother, uh, is very unique. Uh, like you, you mentioned something about how, you know, alcohol, you know, and, and drugs are accessible. And if we had more rights programs, um, you, you could uh, more so intercede. And I, I think that that's essential. You know, in my profession, we have what's called teachable moments, you know, when when uh, individuals experience a particular trauma that is, you know, where individuals uh, need to have uh, what's called a conscious interrupt. And this is why, you know, you know, all of these different organizations need to be connected like the there's a trauma response team. But how do you, you know, because, you know, when people are grieving, uh, or they're, they're under some stress or duress, they, they, their thoughts are uh, twisted. You know, uh, you know they, they're thinking all kinds of thoughts, and they, they don't know how to focus on solutions or how to better enhance their life. So, so these healing conversations uh, certainly need to take place. But uh, some years ago, brother, when, you know, I, I read, you know, some of Haki Metabuddhi's books, and that's why I appreciate, you know, the work, that you're doing and, and, you know, bringing in brother, hopefully uh, brother, Dr. Kim Shockley. Uh, he talked about uh, corners where black men were made to be uh, something. One of his chapters of his book corners were, were made for black men to stand on. And he theorized about uh, that creating these um, not necessarily after school. I mean, of course they're good, but, you know, taking young people out of, the urban environments, which, you know, unfortunately are like battle zones, honestly. And, you know, the same type of warfare scenarios and people that live in warfare conditions 
should, you know, we, we should be looking at, you know, the, the traumas and stresses that people are under in certain conditions. People are living in fear, uh, actually. And I talked to Brother Leroy, and that's what he expressed. Uh, and so my question, let me get to, get to that, but I think that, you know, doing, you know, these rights, you know, even if it's just a weekend, brother, I mean, you know, outside of taking people outside of outside of uh, the communities and seeing different places. I mean, I know it did it for me. Uh, you know, it took me years to start to see different places, different people. And it really was like, man, it took me this long to to to, you know, go to this different place or see people living, you know, a halfway decent life. Uh, so that's all I say, brother. I'll just let you add on and uh, continue to do the great work that you and the other brothers are doing. Thank you, Carl. All right, David, uh, you want to comment on anything that Brother Haki said? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, interesting. Uh, thank you, Brother Haki. And he made you made some good points. You know, for me, Carl, I remember meeting Jawanza Kenjufu in 1985 and reading Countering the Con- countering the Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys. And although I grew up in a two-parent household and, you know, you know, I, I, I was not exposed to, um, you know, this level of knowledge, even in my household that promoted education. And then when I started, you know, reading about being introduced to people like Haki Mahabudi and John Henry Clark and Chancellor Williams and Dr. Francis Cress Wellesley, it, it blew my mind that there were all of these black people that I never heard about in high school and that I never even heard heard about in college that literally had a blueprint. You know, had heard about Malcolm X and, and, and you know, read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Didn't really know a lot about Garvey, but, you know, had some, some reference to Garvey. So I think that this information in the hands of children and families um, at younger and younger ages can be extremely liberating. To, to Haki's point about the trauma, Carl, the amount of trauma that our children live in, live through, and see on a, on a daily basis is similar to what you would see in, quote-unquote, a country that is involved in a civil war. Um, the, the ambulances that are that, that are constantly being deployed and those loud sounds, the police sirens, the yelling and screaming, the gunfire. I mean, imagine being seven years old and this is your reality. And so when we talk about healing, um, I think rites of passage provides uh, a unique framework to begin to do the healing. The, the, for me, it's environment is 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 critically important if we want to see any kind of substantive change in the black community. My my two youngest children went to African-centered schools. So we talk about environment and we talk about the institutions that serve our children because my two youngest attended, you know, African-centered schools, uh, my Rifa in Baltimore and then Roots in D.C. Um, they Outside of what me and mom gave them, we 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 were able to give our children everything that they needed, not just from an academic standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, from a cultural standpoint. So my children can compete with everybody. My son got a full ride to Florida A&M University, just graduated. 
and my and my and my baby girl is uh, on a full ride at North Carolina A and T. And a lot of this is because of the the environment that we made sure that they were in environments that were culturally rich that promoted black excellence. Yeah, it's uh, 29 minutes away from the top there. Take us through some of the stages, because we've been talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about rites of passage, but we've sort of been talking around it. Take us through some of the stages of, of so the audience can understand what is a rites of passage? What happens when you engage in the rites of passage? So so during your initial stages of rites, it's, it's, really, it's really an introduction to the culture, because so many of us, have 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 not learned what it means to even be black in America, and then when you add, you know, what does it mean to really understand um, the African in us, the the you know, kind of the African, you know, in our in our DNA, and then the second step is is you know, once we kind of introduce it, and and again, Carl, it's not just for the young person; it's also for the parents, and then that second level is you know, young people become thoroughly immersed, you know, in the culture, that they begin to learn, you know, whether it might be, you know, Kiswahili or, or begin to learn uh, the Yoruba language and culture and tradition, introducing them to the drum, you know, even for the boys, introducing them to African dance so that they become, they become, you know, thoroughly immersed in the culture. And then, and then sort of the next level, some people really talk about, um, almost like an incorporation or graduation, but there really is no "quote unquote" graduation from rites of passage. There are there are symbolic rituals and symbols that that go along the way, but throughout this process, it's it's a quest for learning how to be the best version of yourselves through an African lens or an African centered framework. And 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 within that, um, there are you know, suggested books, for example, that we know are foundational for for young people, you know, to read, whether it's books by, you know, um, you know, Richard Wright or Ralph Ellison, you know, whether it's, um, you know, understanding and learning about the the um, the history of black music. So even if you are 15 or 16 years old and you may prefer hip hop, you know, we still want to introduce you to Coltrane, you know, and Miles Davis and Sarah Vaughan. And so it it is it is literally called immersing our children in the best of what it means to be black, but at the same time making sure that they can make those serious connections, you know, to the continent. In our work in Baltimore, you know, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise by 2024, we want to be able to take uh, one of our uh, one of one of the initial cohorts of men in our rights uh, program and and the boys that will be coming. Um, which is a, which is our second stage of, of this process. We just recruited 20 men who actually uh, begin this adult rites of passage process with us in Baltimore, and they start September um, 22nd. And the goal is to take these men through their rights process, and then the men will have the responsibility of ushering in future uh, groups of young people. 
All right, hold that thought right there. We've got to take our first look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. But i got a tweet question for you, and I'll let you uh, think about this while, while we take the break. The tweeter says, I would love to in- introduce this to my son. What age do you introduce the rites of passage to our children in middle school, during a birthday party, when and where? That's, that's the tweet uh, question for you, David. But as I mentioned, we got to get caught up in the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities at 25 away from the top. I'll be back in four minutes, though, right here with your response and your phone call in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning again, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with the Baltimore author, the, uh, David Miller. His book, his latest book, I should say, is uh, Dare to be King. It talks about rites of passage. That's what we're discussing this morning. Philip. I must remind you, later this morning, we're going to hear from black politics expert Dr. James Taylor. We're going to talk about reparations and also uh, today's anniversary of 9-11. But before we get to Dr. Taylor, Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement and Elmer Geronimo Pratt gun founder, Nick Bezel will join us at the preview this weekend's Building Power Summit. Later this week, you're going to hear from motivational speaker Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, uh, Kwanzaa creator Dr. Malana Karenga, Maryland State Senator Jill Carter, uh, futuristic researcher Brother Sadiqa Bakari, and also Dr. Dr. Tyrone Powers will be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, uh, David, do you remember the question, the, the tweet question? Or do, do I need to read it again? Uh, yeah, I think you said a parent wanted to know, you know, at what age should, should, they, should they start? I think that the cultural immersion should begin, you know, as, as, as early as, as possible. And and a lot of it, the cultural immersion is, you know, really, really taking into account what's, what's in your home when your child walks in their room, what, what are, what are the things that they are seeing? Are they seeing, you know, posters of Batman and Superman, or are they seeing images of black excellence? And, and, and again, I think that there can be a balance, but I think the cultural immersion you know, does your child have a library? You know, what is your child reading? Are you are you taking your child's phone away from them and, and making sure that you sit down and read with them, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day? There's some amazing, you know, children's books written by black authors. I've written about 12 uh, children's books to really inspire young people. So I think the, the cultural immersion starts early, depending upon which city you live in. Um, you know, there are rites of passage programs that you can connect to. Um, I would I would start by, you know, kind of doing a search to see what programs might be offered. Um, I would also try to connect with some of the African-centered schools in, in, in your city. There's still, you know, many thriving African-centered schools in your city. But you want to start early. You want to start as early as possible because the information that you're going to be exposing your son or daughter to is foreign from what they're seeing and or hearing in school. If you can, if you can get your child connected to a dance class, a, a drum class, you know, again, this is how that cultural immersion starts early. I mean, Carl, you referenced like the Jews, um, you know, with their process and, and our, our Latinx brothers and sisters with their process. Once again, they have, they have, they have made it part of the culture. You know, it's 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 a it's a standard that in the Latinx community, a girl will go through her quinceañera. It's institutionalized, you know, within the culture. A lot of times, I'm sad to say, as a people, 
we all over the damn place. And so there's got to be some some standards in terms of how we, um, you know, socialize our children if we want to win. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you this, uh, 15 away from the top of the hour, David, but many of our people, we don't know who we are. We don't know that we're African. We're being told that we're, uh, what's, what's the new thing they're calling us now? Fundamental Americans. We're all confused. We're all over the place. Or we're ADOS. You know, we're African. We're, and, and, and people buy into this nonsense. And so we don't know who we are. So how can we have this when we don't know who we are? How can, as adults, show this to our children? And they're, they're getting all these confusing messages. So how do we, how do we, how do you know what you don't know? I guess that's the yeah, question. Yeah. No, because if no, they don't no, know who no. they are, how can they tell their children? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 definitely struggling uh, with an identity crisis. But I, but I go back to this kind of radical community, you know, education. Um, you know, tapping into the grassroots. Here's what I do know, Carl, and I've had an opportunity to travel uh, throughout this country. There are some amazing brothers and sisters doing grassroots programming, whether it's rites of passage programming or programming that has a a cultural lens. What we got to do is we got to do a better job of supporting grassroots organizations that are doing the work so that they can begin to expand the work that they're doing. So maybe they're only reaching, you know, 15 families right now. But if but if, but if we really figure out that we got to fund our own freedom and that we got to do a better job of supporting those on the ground that are doing their work, I think we'll be able to reach more families. Are we going to reach everybody? No, we ain't going to be able to reach everybody. Harriet Tubman realized that she wasn't going to reach everybody. But this but this focus on, you know, grassroots, like you said, man, we, 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 we all over the place. I mean, somebody could come up with a new name for black folk next week, get on Instagram, and within a couple months, they might have a couple thousand followers, and we calling ourselves something else. But we got to start with the babies, man. I mean, we got to give, we got to give our babies a fighting chance. And as I said before, man, you know, I grew up as a black male in West Baltimore. I knew success was my birthright. Now I had some challenges along the way, but I at least knew success was my birthright, and I lived in a household that promoted. Black excellence. And I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back, Carl, because I think this is fundamental. When we sat down and we watched the Cosby show, when you entered Cliff and Claire's house, it was a personification of black excellence. When you looked at Cliff might have on an Alcorn State sweatshirt or a Tuskegee sweatshirt, and you looked on the wall and you saw a painting by Jacob Lawrence or Ramir Bearden, and when you, when you listened to the ways that Cliff and Claire talked to their children. They promoted black excellence. Imagine if we did that in our homes. You go to some children's room, all you're going to see is Superman, Batman, Daffy Duck, no books, no no computer software. Um, there's just some serious work that we have to do because no one is coming to save us. So how do we do it? You know, going to you mentioned going to the rooms of some of our, our, our children. You, 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 if it's a if it's a boy, you probably see a, a picture of Kobe up there. How do we get? How do we change that? And and, and so they see a Marcus Garvey or even a Tony Browder a, a, a picture there and and talking about what they have done. How do how do we make that switch? And if so, do do you do it gently? 
do it gradually or just do it for the shock value? Here, check this out. How do, how do you approach your children with that? No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's gently. I think it's everything we do, Carl, got to be out of love because, you know, we know that, um, you know, you know, a large percentage of our people are into just some different stuff, whatever they see, like on, you know, you know, BET or MTV or VH1. So it's got to be done out of love. And again, I go to who are those community champions that we can lift up? You know, whether we're talking Baltimore or DC or Chicago, and how do we, how do we better support so that moms and dads have, you know, more options, you know, that, that the young person can go to a, it could be a STEM camp, but it's but but it's but it's an African centered STEM camp where they're offering STEM, but they're offering you know dance. They're teaching uh, young people how to play to play the djembe, and they're offering you know African dance, and they're teaching children Kiswahili. There are organizations on the community level, Carl, that have the ability to to do this. We just don't support them. So so again, I think it needs to be radical in terms of our approaches for us to kind of, um, you know, see the best of who we are and that there are community champions in every city that are doing the work. Because then that's how I think we are able to attract parents who are looking for alternatives. I've never met a black parent who didn't want the best for their child, but I've met a lot of black parents who didn't necessarily have the skills needed to be the kind of parent that they would like to be. And so, again, this radical community education, and then we got to offer these, for lack of a better term, these alternative options in community where young people are getting the knowledge, but they're also getting the culture. All right. Nine away from the topic, I've got to ask you, since you mentioned Jim Bay, a lot of uh, young people, and even our adults probably, couldn't recognize a Jim Bay, couldn't pick it out. But they, they, they know the latest rap lyrics. Even little babies, they can, you know, it's like they can recite these lyrics. And some of them are, are horrific lyrics. They probably don't know what they mean, but they know how to recite them. And this is sort of taking over our young people. I'm talking about the entertainment industry now. How can we get them involved and switch us around instead of rapping about killing each other and, and downgrading our, 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 the, the women in our, in our lives, including our mothers and our sisters? How can we get them to do something positive? And how can we get our, when, once they do it, how can we get our children to embrace it? And, 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 and again, man, it's, 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 it's going to be a process, you know, called, um, it, it's 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 going to be rooted in family, you know, um, and, and community. Um, you know, when I look at when I look at my children, you know, they are they are young adults. My you know my youngest is a sophomore in college. While they um, listen to rap, you know, they would rather listen to something by you know Marvin Gaye or Public Enemy Fight the Power. And so 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 so. So, you know, a lot of it, I believe, you know, starts in the home, but we got we to gotta do a better job of supporting the home. Now, support these households, Carl. You got a lot of families that are really struggling spiritually, economically, and socially. And I think what ends up happening is we just demonize black families as opposed to how do we support those families? How do we teach, you know, this single mom or grandmom? that in the morning she should be, we need to introduce her to Coltrane 
or Miles Davis or some, some, some softer music that would breathe life into her children instead of on the way to school, you know, your children are listening to Megan Thee Stallion in the car ride over to the, over to the school. So it is definitely a process. It is, it is, it is, it is, it's going to, it's going to take a cultural, you know, awakening. Um, But we just don't have a choice, man. Our backs are up against the wall. And uh, again, everything that we do has to be rooted in love. Yeah, and I got to ask you as we come to a break, I'll let you respond on the other side. I know it's rooted in love, but some some of us don't know about love. You know, uh, we have uh, parents, adults, parents who get high with their children. They drink with them and smoke weed with them and they think it's cool. When we come back from the break, how do we reach those those parents? Those are the ones we need to get to. Seven minutes away from the top there. As I mentioned, we got to get caught up on our latest traffic and weather for our commuters this, commuters this morning. It's, uh, uh, we'll be back in four minutes, though, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information, is power. Keep Good morning again, family. A minute after the top of the hour. Thanks for joining us this morning. Our guest is David. We've got Nick Bessel and uh, Patrick Lamumba. We'll get to them momentarily. But David David was talking about this book, Is There to Be a King? Before we left with the traffic and weather update, I was telling you about these adults that I know, uh, David, female, and she it was getting gets high with her with her sons, you know, teenagers. Uh, they they buy weed for her and they get high and they drink together. And I was telling this other brother about it. And he says, well, you know, my dad, when he, I was six years old, gave me a sip of a beer, you know, a 40 ounce. And I'm like, what? And, and this brother is in his 70s. So he's carried this all along. This is what he remembered. Uh, address those issues for us as, as parents, as black parents, uh, that kind of, uh, that kind of unfor- unfortunate behavior with our children. So, you know, one, the reason why I was saying that Everything that we do has to be rooted in love, whether the folk that we're working with understand uh, love or not. It's got to be rooted in love because I think what happens, Carl, is we tend to to demonize um, black folks, particularly, you know, black parents. And so it's going to take some work, man. And I just think that it is it is community education. Um, I have always said that um, the work with black parents parents is super critical um, to the salvation of, of black children. And so, um, you know, the work that I do, uh, a lot of the work that I do is also with black fathers. Not only have I done uh, um, some, some substantial research, but also practice, you know, engaging fathers, particularly fathers who, you know, may have rolled out of the home, who may not live with their children. Um, there's just some serious work that needs to be done at the community level. I mean, there's some work that needs to be done at the policy level, but at the same time, when we're talking about, you know, you know, moms and dads smoking weed with their children, drinking with their children at a young age, um, you know, it, 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 it just speaks to the kind of chaos that's happening in, in individual homes and in communities that we need to address. But again, it's got to be done out of a spirit of love and trying not to be judgmental, but really, really um, providing, you know, young people and their parents with some additional support. And then, and then what we're also looking at, Carl, is we're also looking at generational 
dysfunction. We're looking at, in, in many situations, you're talking about uh, poor parenting over several generations. So how do we break that yeah. cycle? Right. And uh, before we get to Nick and Patrick, uh, Sister Fahima is calling from Washington, D.C., has a suggestion for you. She's on line six. Good morning, Sister Fahima. I'm with David Miller. Good morning, Mr. Nelson. Thank you for taking my call. And greetings to you, my brother. Um, I just want to say, uh, first off, that you took a tragedy and turned it into a triumph, and you you must be commended for that. Well, thank you, Sister. Thank you. Yes, sir. Now, I'm a clinician, and most recently I recommended a client to, to, to she get her children into capoeira. And so she has two small children, yes. and she, two kids are uh, going to be in capoeira. And as uh, the parent of a child is in, with two kids, she gets to take classes free. And so there are ways to get our people engaged. And she called me and she thanked me. Uh, for uh, introducing this to her. You have Brother Obi Aguna, who has the mass emphasis yes. here in the district. Um, the, the Smithsonian African American Museum, they have all kinds of children's programs. Uh, they're in Kwanzaa, there are various Kwanzaa programs, and all of the African centered schools have all kinds of programs. So it's really not that difficult, you know, um, and I just want to encourage you. Um, to continue doing what you're doing, and thank you. Well, well, thank you, thank you, sister. And I'm good friends with uh, Baba Obi. He was very instrumental in the development of my two younger children. My two younger children are products of you know Roots Public Charter in the district, and they also were part of Mass Emphasis Theater Group. And so, as you indicated, whether you're talking about D.C. or Baltimore or Chicago or Philly, there are um, efforts for our people, but, but so many people in community, you know, so many folks in D.C. don't even know Baba Obi even exists. So how, how do we better support, you know, the great work that Baba Obi is doing um, and figure out ways to help um, uh, fund the work that he's doing internally so he can expand? Right. All right. Thank well, you, Sister yeah. Fahima. It's not We're that keep moving. Please look for the information. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank sister. you. Six after the top. David, how, how can folks reach you? That's a great question, Carl. Um, uh, <laughs> go to <laughs> no, because I got so many different websites. And everything. Go to iamdavidmiller.com, iamdavidmiller.com, or you can go to daretobeking.net. I am, just like it sounds, davidmiller.com or daretobeking.net. All right. Thanks, David. And thanks for the work you do. We've got to have you back and continue this, this discussion. But thank you for all that you do for our, our, our young folks in Baltimore. All righty. It's David thank Miller. You, He's an author on the latest book, Peace, Brother, is Dare to be King. Let's turn our attention now to uh, Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement. Good morning, Patrick. Grand Rising, Brother Carl. How you doing? We're doing excellent. Also, uh, Elmer Geronimo Pratt, gun founder, Nick Bazell. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you for having us on here this morning. Into uh, the event that you guys are having this weekend, uh, let's start with Patrick. Patrick, uh, give us a little bit of, of your background. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Brother Carl, I've been uh, here in Mississippi. I'm a lifelong Mississippian. I've uh, been here, born and raised here in Mississippi, and um, took to uh, community activism 
I don't even like to call it activism. I like to call it blacktivism. So it took to community blacktivism early in my uh, young adulthood and uh, just been doing social uh, activism, you know, for about 25 years now, formulated what we call the Mississippi-based Black Liberation Movement uh, about 12 years ago. So we've been pushing real hard on the social activism uh, levels here in Mississippi, trying to organize our people for black power. All right. And Nick, your background. Yes, sir. So I founded the the Elmer Geronimo Pratt Pistol Rifle Gun Club uh, back in uh, January of 2020. Uh, You know, we we started off really as a a organization to help black people, um, you know, learn how to defend themselves, become more proficient with firearms, just to try to even the playing field um, as it comes to, you know, what what these white people are doing. Um, because we understand that it's taboo having guns in the black community normally is taboo amongst our people. So we want to normalize self-defense and blacks owning firearms. Um, and what ended up happening is just what we did, the work that we did evolved into so much more. Um, so today we have, uh, you know, food programs. Uh, you know, we work with the black liberation movement with brother Patrick, um, you know, as it comes to working in these communities to help our people, um, we've got laws changed, especially if it applies to um, any type of laws that are disproportionately affects black people. It's like we got no knock warrants banned in the state of Texas because our headquarters is in Austin, Texas, um, and we have chapters all throughout the country. So a lot of the work that we do goes so much further than just um, guns and firearms. You know, we want to make sure we get back. We want to make sure that um, our people are getting the resources that they need. We want to make sure that we're engaging with some of these uh, politicians to make sure that these laws get changed, again, that disproportionately affect uh, black people in our communities. All right. And, Nick, are you seeing a, a, a surge in, in black folks signing up to, to become uh, registered gun owners now these days? Absolutely, uh, Brother Carl. I think um, the first big surge that we saw, like I said, we officially started in January of 2020, but during the George Floyd uh you know, protest that summer uh, and then the pandemic being, you know, basically simultaneously, uh, we saw a huge uh, rise in gun ownership. And anytime that you see anything, January 6th, when that happened, we saw another surge. So anytime you have um, any any incident like that, just recently, the Jacksonville shooting, we saw a spike um, in people that wanted to get involved as well. So that just shows you that black people are becoming more conscious about their surroundings and things that are happening. And so when these things happen, they naturally want to gravitate um, toward organizations like ours um, to be, again, to become more proficient, to learn more about firearms. Because one thing that I've discovered that I hear time and time again is that, um, you know, prior to finding organizations like ours, black people really aren't comfortable going to the gun range alone or going to these gun stores alone. They want to learn from people who look like them. They want to understand firearms from people who look like them and not feel um, you know, and, and having that. said that, let, let me jump in and ask you this, though, uh, Nick, uh, are you seeing more women? Uh, 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 do we have our own black gun ranges where we feel comfortable be, being amongst ourselves? Because, you know, we don't, we don't have any kind of accident with these other folks. They say it was an accident, you know, right. and, and and purchasing do you help folks when they try to purchase the ammunition and guns as well. Did you do we have our own gun shops? So we, we are having a rise. We do have, um, you know. There are a lot of um, black gun 
distribution company. So, you know, they'll purchase it. They'll be the middleman to be able to sell to black people. Um, you have actually have some uh, ammunition manufacturers who are black. We do have black gun stores. Um, you know, there are, uh, I believe, two or three black-owned gun ranges now in the country. Um, that number could be off, but but that I'm aware of, there are about three black gun ranges uh, throughout the country. So you are seeing these numbers increase um, as it pertains to black people and having our own resources um, in, in the gun community. All right, Twiller at the top of the house. Sister Sabrina is joining us. She's calling from Washington, D.C., has a question for you, brothers. Sabrina? Greetings. Uh, can, you hear, can you all hear me? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can hear. Um, Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, first off, I wanted to say greetings and also uh, hello. Um, I talked to um, Jenny, a, a nickname that we've been calling for the years, uh, Virginia Pratt, which is Geronimo Pratt's um, uh, sister. And she reminded me yesterday when I told her that you were coming on that uh, on the 13th, is Geronimo Pratt's birthday, um, and that. So I, I, I don't know if you all aware. And, and hold that thought right there, Sister Sabrina, because you mentioned 13. It's 13 at the top of the hour. we got to take a quick look at the traffic and weather for our folks on the road this morning. It's, uh, so we've got to take a quick break. I'll let you finish your question or your comment for Brother Nick Brazell and, and Patrick Lumumba in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Hey, good morning again, family. 19 minutes after the top of the hour. Just join us, uh, our guest, uh, we have uh, uh, Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement and also Elmer Geronimo Pratt, Gunfrout, and Nick Bessel. Let's have a big event taking place this weekend. we get to that momentarily. But before we left, we're speaking with Sister Sabrina in, in D.C., and she has a question for them. She's on line one. Sister Sabrina, I'm going to let you finish your question for the brothers. Okay. As I was saying, uh, Geronimo Pratt's um, birthday birthday is on September the 13th. And then also, I'm sure you're going to get it more to uh, uh, what you all done have done for the community. Um, of just uh, just only you know uh, being acknowledged of you know the gun club and uh, definitely a support uh, support you all and the uh, Fred Hampton Gun Club uh, and the other gun clubs because it's vital and much needed, especially in this time. And I see that you okay. You're talking about the summit. I'm, I'm sure that you'll say about that. But please also, um, I'm, uh, hopefully, you can fit in about with um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to look here real fast. Um, oh, I just missed it. The um, the um, the the gentleman that you are fighting uh, for. Um, their dates uh, for, as well, we would term political prisoners uh, within the belly of the beast uh, with their um, court are you speaking situation. Of, are you speaking of Marvin Guy or Otha Wallace? Both of them, yes. Okay. Okay, and I, I'll get off and let you all explain that. Thank you so much and, uh, for everything that you all do. Very much appreciate it. All right. All right. <clears throat> That's a good question, sister. I appreciate it. Um, so, so one of one of the initial initiatives that we worked on as the Elmer Geronimo Pratt Gun Club, and like like I said during 2020, uh, you know, a lot of things came about that we got involved in. 
And one of those things we got involved with was was a brother named Marvin Guy out of Colleen, Texas. Colleen is where Fort Hood is located. Um, it's just north of Austin where our headquarters is at. Uh, Marvin was the victim back in uh, May of 2014 of an illegal and botched no-knock raid in his home. The police there were looking for uh, drugs, an informant, a rat, a snitch, somebody who's trying to cover his own backside. Um, said that Marvin was some some big-time drug dealer. Well, they go into his residence, they go into his vehicles. Um, there were no drugs found. But in the process of this raid, uh, Marvin, as we all do, you know, it's our, our right to be able to defend ourselves, and particularly in Texas where you have no duty to retreat, um, and the Castle Doctrine, you've been able to, to protect your home. Um, he thought somebody, well, they were. Somebody was breaking into his home, but it happened to be the slave patrol. He fired shots, uh, but as this raid was taking place, the police were coming through the front of his residence and the rear of his residence. They tried to throw a flash grenade in there. It drops, it goes off. They start shooting through the house. In the process of all this, one of the detectives uh, was killed during this raid, and so Marvin was charged with um, capital murder in the state of Texas. Now, his trial begins October 30th of this year. He's been in the detention facility in the county for nine years, over nine years now, with no trial, which is unconstitutional. So these are one of the initiatives that we've been fighting on early on. Um, and because of his situation, we were able to get uh, no-knock warrants uh, and no-knock raids banned in Killeen, Texas. We worked and got it uh, where it was banned now in Austin. It's also banned in San Antonio. We worked to get it banned on the state level, um, but they voted not to make no-knock warrants illegal um, throughout the state of Texas. So the only thing that we can continue to do is keep going from city to city to fight to get these no-knock raids um, and these no-knock warrants banned throughout the state of Texas. And hopefully uh, the country follows suit. A lot of people are familiar with Breonna Taylor's case and, and what Louisville ended up doing down there with their no-knock warrants. Uh, and to the other brother that the sister was speaking on, Otho Wallace. Otho Wallace um, is another black uh, Second Amendment advocate um, who was approached by a slave patroller down in Florida. His trial actually started last week because um, there was a, another slave patroller who lost his life, um, you know, during Othel's interaction. He had an interaction with Othel Wallace, Ozone. And Mr. Wallace was sitting on his property. He lived at a fourplex. He was on his own property. And a slave patroller approached him aggressively um, and began putting his hands on Mr. Wallace. Mr. Wallace, um, again, his trial um, begins, well, last week they started the jury selection process, so I'm not going to speak on detail about that. But um, a slave patroller uh, approached him, became physical with Mr. Wallace. That slave patroller lost his life. And so now Mr. Wallace is going to have his day in court um, to tell his side of the story. So these are brothers who use uh, tools at their disposal um, to protect themselves from people who were intent to do them harm. And so I think as black people, this is, you know, the the basis of what the Elmer Geronimo Pratt Gun Club is about is about people learning their, their rights, their laws, having gun insurance, protection insurance. Like these are things that we stress in the event that you end up in one of these shooting situations because we understand the cost and the fees that, that are accumulated when you have to defend yourself in these situations and everything else that goes along. You're talking about being able to receive a bond. Uh, Mr. Guy, the one in Colleen, Texas, his bond is set at, at $4 million. He doesn't have that money, so he's been sitting in there for nine years, which is unconstitutional. 
um, we worked to get him a, a reduction in bond hearing, and they decided not to reduce his bond. So these are things that you have to think about um, as being a, a, a gun owner, firearms owner, and in the event that you have to use that weapon to protect yourself, what are all the repercussions that are going to come behind it? So I appreciate the question, sister, to bring light uh, to Brother Marvin and to Brother Ozone as well. Thank you. All right. 26 out of the top there. I got a tweet question. The question says, uh, question for Nick. The, the tweet says, last year there was a rally in Austin, Texas, where several in the group expressed interest in closing borders or building a wall. And the tweet goes on to say, many of us in other parts of the country may not understand the challenges blacks may experience in places like Texas and California. And goes on to say, historically, many Black Panthers theoretically desired allies. Do you believe the public expressions of your march protest reflects a shift from norms or is it a reality of living close to the border where brown people are, are oppressing blacks that's another good question I'm, I'm glad that it was brought up so i can clarify um you know what that was really about uh, we have to understand that black americans um currently this day and time 2023 we are a permanent underclass in america so when you look at everything that takes place, what has transpired over the last 60 to 65 years, any group of people that comes into America, they come in knowing that they are going to be placed above black Americans. Now, we are the, 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 the children of the ones who built this nation, but yet we don't reap any of the benefits from being there. Um, while we only make up 13 to 15 percent of the U.S. population, we make up over 40 percent of the homeless population. You know, we're refugees in our own country. We have gentrification that takes place. Um, the, you know, anytime in the workplace, we get overlooked, we get passed over for these jobs. Um, while we have all these issues going on in our community, we have to look at what happens to us, like right now, currently, the war in Ukraine. These resources should be allocated to our people to help our people, but instead it gets sent over um, to other nations to help fund their war efforts instead of helping are people who are living on the streets. Um, so while I don't, uh, I don't dislike anybody, but I have to live with a reality that our people are a permanent underclass. We are the, the, the bottom of the totem pole. And so I would be negligent if I don't speak up and say, hey, these things need to take place for our people to advance when we talk about reparations and we talk about job placement, all these things, um, being able to get contracts, having our own businesses. These are the things that I'm talking about. I don't dislike anybody. I just love my people that much. So if you look at a lot of jobs that, that um, people come into this country and take, whether it's legally or illegally, with visas or coming in here to work illegally, our people are the ones who suffer because of this. So I'm not against people coming through um, the proper channels coming into the country, but a lot of these illegal workers that come in, it permanently affects the way that our people um, are affected. And so I'm against that. Um, and so that's what that was about. That was about us um, getting what is owed to us as people, being over 400 years, being in this country, and never receiving um, our just due or our justice and be able to extend um, that other people will come in and live the quote-unquote American dream. All right. Thanks for that explanation. Uh, 30 minutes after the top there. But you guys have a big event taking place this weekend. Patrick, fill us in about the Building Power Summit. Yes, sir. Well, this year we'll be conducting the 7th Annual 
Black Liberation Movement, Elmo Geronimo Pratt Building Power Summit. Um, it's the seventh year for us. We'll be conducting it in Jackson, Mississippi, for very specific purposes. We, we have not conducted it in Jackson uh, prior to this year. We've been doing it mostly in North Mississippi. But uh, for most of the people um, that's listening, we're doing it in Jackson, Mississippi, for very specific purposes. Jackson, Mississippi, and the state of Mississippi is actually experiencing a civil war. And I'm pretty sure people have been hearing about it all across the nation. Uh, Jackson right now is suffering uh, some of the most overt uh, and openly aggressive racism uh, to speak of. You know, Jackson is suffering environmental racism, infrastructural racism, political racism, economic racism, and traditional and just plain historic racism. Uh, white people in Mississippi want Jackson back. Of course, we know Jackson is in the wake of uh, the leadership of the late Chuck Way Lumumba uh, Sr. is presently under the mayorship of Antar Lumumba, and uh, he has a sister, Raquel Lumumba, who's running for state senate. Uh, Jackson is a black-governed uh, city, and we felt compelled to move our power summit to Jackson to uh, present an adequate response to what white supremacy is trying to do here in Mississippi, uh, Brother Carl. Um, I want to kind of prelude uh, to make people understand um, intricately what's going on here in Mississippi. I had an experience about 20 years ago in Tula, Mississippi. Minister Louis Farrakhan came to speak to the Congressional Black Caucus, and I was privy to be in that audience. Minister Farrakhan addressed the audience and one of the Things that he said, he said, uh, out of oppression, change comes. Out of the most oppression comes the most change. He said that black people in Mississippi have suffered more than any black people in America. He said that he was looking for something special to come out of Mississippi. I took that to heart 20 years ago as a young man. I took it to heart. I said, that's me. I said, that's me. I said, he's talking about me. He's talking about the leadership that already exists in Mississippi that needed to emerge out of the oppression that we suffered. So right now, today, uh, Brother Carl, we stand proud uh, that we are able to present this Black Power Summit. It has grown over the last six years, and this being the seventh, where people come from all over the nation, as far up the East Coast as Philadelphia, Mississippi, our brothers Elliot Booker and, um, and, and, and Richard Wright, in Chicago, Illinois, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, all over the country to come to Mississippi to talk about black power organizing and networking and pushing forward as a people. So that's what we're doing, uh, Brother brother Carl. We're building black power in, in one of the places that we probably least expected to do it. All right. Hold that thought right there. We've got to take a short break and get caught up on the latest news, uh, traffic and weather in our different cities. When we come back, though, uh, break down some of the events that are going to take place at this summit, how long it's going to last, and some of the speakers you guys are going to have there. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Nick Bezel or Patrick Lumumba, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. 
And good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour this morning. We're speaking with Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement based in Mississippi. Also, Elmer Geronimo Pratt gun founder Nick Bezel is with us. And they have this uh, preview of this weekend's Building Power Summit that's going to take place in Mississippi in Jackson. We'll get to it momentarily. We'll get to that. But let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with black politics expert Dr. James Taylor. And later this week, motivational speaker uh, Dr. Dennis Kimber will at Atlanta will join us. The Kwanzaa creator Dr. Maulana Kringer will also be here. Maryland State Senator Jill, Car- uh, Jill Carter will be here as well as futuristic researcher Brother Sadiqa Bakari and Dr. Tyron Powers from Baltimore. They're all going to be here this, mo- uh, this week, so make sure that your radio is locked in tight on 1010 WOLB in Baltimore. If you're in the DMV, we're rolling on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Right, let's go back to Nick and Patrick. Uh, Patrick, the question I was asking you, both of you guys actually, was this weekend summit. If you can tell us more what's going to take place, where, what time, who are some of the speakers, because what some of the what some of the topics are going to be discussed? Yes, sir. But well, this is a three day experience that's going to begin September the fifteenth, um, and it will go on through the seventeenth. So Friday, that Friday, uh, we're going to be at the Smith Robinson Museum, uh, which is the oldest historically black school in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, we're going to have uh, speakers that day. We're going to have meet and greet and guided tours. Uh, through what we call Mega Eversville, uh, and a lot more. We're going to have media role where we'll be able to have a lot of media outlets and a lot of conversation about what it is we'll be doing that day. Uh, that Saturday, we'll be at the historic Tougaloo College uh, from 9 to 6 p.m., where we'll have a host of speakers. Uh, some of the speakers that will be headlining this event is uh, our brother Hawk Newsom up there in New York. He'll be coming down. Uh, Nick and myself will also be speaking then uh, that day. Uh, Sister High Octane, there'll be a lot of presentations in, uh, on reparations, uh, presentations on education, economics, and ag development uh, that we do a lot of here in Mississippi, and also political education. And that Sunday, uh, we'll close out at the M.W. Stringer Grand Lodge, uh, one of the historic Grand Lodges. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. Actually, we found out that Mega Elvis actually had an office that he operated out of in that particular Grand Lodge. Uh, and we'll be having breakfast with the elders. Well, we'll have uh, our esteemed guest, Baba Akinyele Umoja, the author of We Will Shoot Back, one of the required readings for our Elmer Geronimo Pratt uh, Gun Club members, and uh, a lot more elders um, that we'll have that particular day. And uh, we'll have a walk through the community as well, the community of Jackson, just to make sure that we touch base with the common man in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, and let them know that we are here uh, and there to support and um, be there for them. So it's a three-day event. Like I said, September the 15th through the 17th. It's a three-day experience, I meant to say, uh, September 15th through the 17th. Is it free or is it, is it going to be a, a webcast? Or how, how's it going to work? Yes, sir. It, it, it's very free. You know, we made uh, the economic uh, commitment to make it free. We just want people to get there, you know, and uh, it will be live streamed. Uh, for the most part, it will be live streamed. And, uh, yes, it is free. We we need people to just get to Jackson, Mississippi. All right. 17 away from the top. Yeah, Brother Sekou's joining us uh, from Baltimore. He's on line one, has a comment or a question for you, brothers. Brother Sekou, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Um, I was listening to the conversation, 
And I have a question about what Hakimati Booty used to teach us back in the 70s. He said, if you are silent, no one will hear you coming. But if you make much noise, your enemies can prepare for you. That's a very powerful statement. We need to stop advertising our intentions. And we need to build locally self-defense organizations. Because these mass shootings are going to escalate. White males are terrified about the destruction of white supremacy, especially the lower-class white males, because they don't get the prestige, the advantages, the positions that they used to get back in the day. And they're afraid. And we have to be prepared for that. We have to teach our children who they are and who their enemy is. I hear a lot of different labels being attached to African people. And Dr. Clark told us years ago, and all we need to do is study him and understand what he said. He said, we're Africans, we have no friends in the world, and we have to save ourselves. It's simple as that. But when you number approximately a billion people on the planet in continental Africa, in the Caribbean, in the United States, you don't need any friends outside the race. So we need to stop begging other folk to join us or to help us because they're not. It's every race for itself and God for us all. Y'all all have right. a nice Thank you, day. brother. Thank you, Brother Seku, calling from Baltimore. Nico, Patrick, you want to respond to what he says? Because one of the things he talked about, we should be planning in secret. I want to get your brother's thoughts on that. Nico, Patrick, you want to respond to that from Brother Seku? Yeah, I think uh, so. Partially what he's saying is correct. Um, You know, a lot of times you you don't want to advertise everything that you're doing. But at the same time, I think we have to understand um, evolution and how things evolve. Um, You know, my biggest thing is making sure that we can train as many black men, women, and children as possible. Um, And how do we do that in this day and age? This isn't the 60s or the 70s anymore. You know, everything is done. This is a digital age. And so we have to reach as many people as possible to be able to train them. And so a lot of ways that we do that is through social media. Now, I'm not saying that you should go out there – and, and project every single thing that you're doing. No, but what you also have to do is make sure that you, you are accessible for people so they can get that train. You know, I, I remember, or, you know, you always hear the term, uh, the revolution won't be televised. Um, I, I don't, like, I don't subscribe to that either. So I believe the revolution will be televised, but the planning for the revolution won't be televised. So, so that goes along to what, what the elder was just saying on the call right now. Um, so we have to understand that we have to prepare our people and use every means at our disposal to get our people trained. Now, what that training looks like, certain training, you don't want to advertise that. But we have to understand these white supremacists, they're going to soft targets. They're going to places where black, they feel black people aren't going to be be armed because what did I say when I first came on the show? Blacks with firearms is considered taboo. 
So the more black people that we can train, we make it harder for us to be killed and be able to protect ourselves in these grocery stores or at these um, locations where they're just running in these dollar generals or these dollar stores or these churches. See, these white people have armed security in their churches, but our people still have, for the most part, the mindset that, um, you know, we don't need guns in our churches. You know, everything's going to be all right. Well, we know what they've done historically. We know what they do when they come to the churches. So we have to start uh, reevaluating how we look at protecting ourselves as, as a people as a whole. So while I do agree with some of the things that the elder was just saying, it doesn't necessarily mean I agree with everything, but I do agree with some of the things he's saying, and we do implement some of those uh, practices in, in our organization. All right, to all the way for the top, let me ask you this, though. How can we get some of our young people, the, the young brothers who had on, out on the street corners or those in Chicago who are, or in Baltimore and, and Detroit, Memphis, you should name any, any major urban cities, and they're using their guns on each other. How can we get them to turn around? How can you recruit some of the young brothers to, so they can use their, if they're going to use their weapons, to use it positively? Have you tried to reach out to those young brothers? No, absolutely. Um, even even last year when we were, uh, you know, working with Brother Patrick last year in Mississippi, uh, you know, a lot of our things is when Jackson had his water crisis, myself, Brother Jackson, uh, Brother Patrick, and many others, we took a U-Haul truck into Jackson and just met with people, went to different areas in Jackson and gave out water and met with some of those brothers, met with some of those sisters and, and kind of talked to them about their situation and, you know, let them know that, hey, there is an outlet for you all. Um, come get proper training. Let's make sure that, you know, these guns that you have, you're trained, you know, you know how to use them properly, you know how to use them safely, you know how to maintain them and clean them, and, you know, what they're really used for, and try to get people out of the mindset as far as using them against each other. I think um, once people understand the what's really going on, right, the situations that happens in our cities is more of an economic problem more than anything else. And what we have to do is find ways to get resources. It goes back again earlier in the, in the conversation. These resources are being sent to other countries, to other groups of people, instead of helping our own people. But we have to find ways to create jobs um, and economic opportunities for our, our brothers and our sisters in the community. And that's how you lower, uh, you know, part of the way you lower the, the, the violence that you see, and then also being able to educate them um, on proper use of firearms. All right. Uh, Ten away from the top there. Marvin's up next. He's on line one. He's calling from Baltimore. He has a question for you, brothers. Marvin, good morning. You're on with Nick Bezel and Patrick Lumumba. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Peace. We're great. Yeah, I I just want to say that, um, I mean, what you're saying is, is right. I ain't going to knock that. But we also got to understand that we have black people killing black people real heavy. And, I mean, I feel as though before we tackle the supreme problem, we need to tackle our own, get us straight first. You know, and then maybe we can send a message to everybody, and then we can get some of that to stop. What do you think? Well, brother, I think— All right, Nick or oh, Patrick, go ahead. Let me just say this real quick, brother Patrick, and I'll let you take over. I, I, I think what you're saying, brother, is is we can we can do—we can <laughs> walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. So, yes, what you're saying is is also true. Um, but uh, I think we can do both things at the same time. Brother Patrick, you can go ahead yeah. and take over. Yeah. 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 I think what people miss the model, what it is that we're doing now, of course, Nick has made uh -huh. 
2A organizer loud, and he had made it proud. And so have we uh, similar with the Black Liberation Movement in making the bill for black power loud and proud. Uh, And that pretty much created the merger between uh, the Black Liberation Movement and Elmer Jerome Pratt. Now, I think this is such a phenomenon that our people... Uh-huh. Yes, sir. Can, can y'all hear me? I'm hearing background stuff. I hate I hate Yeah, so I think this is such a phenomenon that our people, the shock value of what it is that we're doing, our people are not ready to really palate it and digest it. But when we out there doing the domestic civic development aspect and uh, pushing agendas like Mississippi on the move, political organizing across the state of Mississippi, and people like Nick Bezel, is doing what it is that he's doing, that's knocking on DA doors and demanding justice. These paths run into each other. And there's such a, a rare occurrence that our people, for the most part, are not uh, familiar with it. And really, they're not familiar with the, 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 the audacity, the unapologetic uh, forward motion of what it is that we produce. So uh, I, I, I expect, you know, responses like this. But at some point, Black people need to have the audacity audacity and the testicular fortitude to move forward and to build power just as other people have done, you know, in this country. So um, that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing the merger of two uh, organizations that's led by two people. And when I met Nick Bezel, I met one of the most morally upstanding people I had ever met in my life. And And it began this process. So... Uh, we expect the question, but we run into young black people that see model example of what it is that we're doing. And they saying, how can we become a part of that? So we absorbing the gang activity and we organizing and redirecting the energy of that. So we have a very positive effect in reality because I think most of the time people think out of fear and they create uh, theories because white supremacy power is so audacious and powerful that we always capitulate to that. But these are two organizations that are not capitulated, and we see what it looks like real time when we go into these cities where young black men have had their lives taken by uh, the slave patrol, as Nick uh, uh, so profoundly uh, called them. And, and, and we see right. the effect of our work, you know, immediately. And, so and Patrick, have- hold that thought right there. I'll let you finish your comment on, on the other side, but we've got to take a quick break here for our folks out on the streets. Got to find out what the uh, traffic and weather looks like and also the news update in, in Baltimore. Six minutes away from the top. I'll be back with Nick and Patrick in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. Two minutes after the top there. I'm momentarily we speak with black politics expert, Dr. James Taylor. Let's wrap up with uh, Patrick Lumumba from the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi and Elmer Geronimo Pratt, gun founder, Nick Bessel. I think uh, uh, Patrick was speaking before we left, and Mark in Baltimore has a quick uh, comment or a question for you, brother. So, Patrick, I'll let you finish your thought. Yeah, I just finished my thought with this, uh, uh, brother Carl. You know, I think that the only reality to a lot of our people is white supremacy. And the true emergence of black power is just a theory to us. But, you know, not 
to these two organizations and these two men that you're speaking to today, the um, the assertion of black power is actually practical, and we are uh, actually working on that to ascertain it. So that's where we at uh, with that, uh, Brother Carl. All right, Mark in Baltimore, uh, on line four, real quick, can you address these brothers, uh, Nick and Patrick, for us? Yeah, good morning. How y'all doing, Nick and Patrick? Thank y'all for everything y'all doing. Uh, I'm here in Baltimore. Brother, say cool. Uh, I love that brother, um, Carl. He's up in his 70s. He's still on the battlefield. And uh, here in Baltimore, guys, we are doing um, that. I agree with y'all 100%. It's, it's time for all the black people to stand up. And here in Baltimore, we do have the Muslim brothers, Christian brothers, and everybody working together um, to train our young people and stuff like that to, to be better and take resources to the community. As a matter of fact, tonight, and stay cool, and anybody can join us at Bishop Daniels Church, 2118 Madison Avenue in, in the Sandtown area at 6 o'clock tonight. Anybody, pastors, white, black, Men on Mondays and Saturdays, we have everybody because it's more dangerous on Mondays. And thank y'all, brothers, for everything that y'all do. All right. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate All it. right, Nick and Patrick, uh, how can folks get in touch with you guys? How, how can we figure out what's going on if we want to join you in, in Mississippi and Jackson uh, this weekend? Where do we go? Is there a website, email address? Absolutely. If if anybody wants to, to, to see what's going on uh, this weekend or at any time that we have, uh, any events going on, any, you know, anything that you can do if you want to join, if you want training, you know, if we have trainers there because we do have trainers um, in the DMV area as well. And I know a lot of listeners have been calling in from there, but if anybody wants any information, training, you know, joining anything, they can just go to uh, www.egpgunclub.com. Again, that's www.egp gunclub.com and then anything dealing specifically uh what what mississippi uh they can go to the black liberation movement.com again black liberation movement.com so those are our two websites uh for our organization so if anybody has anything uh that they want to do nationally want to come and help in mississippi again go to uh egpgunclub.com or go to black liberation movement.com and that's how you can uh, find out exactly what we're doing all right, and that's for ElmerGeronimoPratt.com. Uh, that's what the initials stand for. Thank you again for you, brothers, what you're doing. Thank you for trying to get keep our people together in, there in Jackson, Mississippi. We're going to win, so don't worry about it. We're going to win for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Carl. All right. All right, there's Brother Nick Bezel and uh, Brother Patrick Lumumba. Brother Patrick Lumumba is from the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, and Elmer Geronimo Pratt, gun founder, is Nick Bezel. All right, let's turn our attention now. Five of the top there, Dr. James Taylor. Good morning, Dr. Taylor. Welcome back to the program. It's great to be back on the call. Nelson Show call. I just want to ask you this first, though. Do you remember where you were when 9-11 took place? You remember what you were doing? Were you up I or do. you were still asleep? Uh, I was wide awake. It was that morning, uh, and my mother and I uh, got on the phone. My mom has since passed in 2017, but um, at the time, uh, when it, the first plane hit, I called her immediately because she had always told me about stories around the 1930s where the uh, Empire State Building had been hit uh, by by an airplane, by you know, a small plane once, and a bridge, I think, in the D.C. area had been hit once. And so she, you know, put those in historical context. 
and and so I called her, and then while we were on the phone, the second plane hit, and then we knew, like everybody else, that it was it was far more than than we had imagined. And that day, I remember when there were no airplanes in the sky uh, for for a day or two, and that was you know the eerie eerie part. It was you know it was devastating because I I'm from New York, was born and raised there, uh, you know all my young life, and. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I went, you know, a couple of dates to the to the Windows on the World, the Twin Towers. They had a nice restaurant atop one of the buildings called Windows on the World, and it was just really, you know, otherworldly. And you know, you get up there in two seconds from the uh, from the elevators, they get you from the bottom, you know, 200 floors up in two seconds. It was amazing, um, and so it was a very nice place. Um, and so I could just imagine the horror and the nightmare that it was uh, for people that were directly involved in it. But for those of us who were in New York, you know, it was, it was before 9-11 and after 9-11 that changed that place forever. Yeah, and, and changed the way that we all live now. I remember being on the air when it happened. Like you, the first plane to crash, I was getting ready to go, go off and, and, and turn over to the morning team. And, and I says, you know, a plane is just crashing into the world, one of the World Trade Center towns, one of the towns of the World Trade Center. And, it, you know, I, like you, I thought it was just an accident. It was, and, and then by the time I'd finished my studies, another plane, and I said, oh, what's going on? And then we, as all of us learned out, as you mentioned, all the planes, all the flights were grounded nationwide, almost, and I don't know if it was international, but nationwide for sure, all the planes were grounded across the United States. And, and we found out it was something much more. And, and and like everybody else, we're trying to process what had happened because you know we, in our lifetime, America's been un, never been under attack, you know, like that. Right. We, we, to imagine what happened in Pearl Harbor. I don't know if they felt. This, do you think they felt the same thing in Pearl Harbor where, uh, th that America was under attack? Like what, what was happening in nine eleven? Absolutely, absolutely. I think you know I've read enough history to know that uh, it, it you know caused a general reaction and fear in this country, and it, it ratchets up the war machine in the country. More, more recently, though, with the 9-11 uh, aftermath, one of the things that, you know, <laughs> pertains to black people is that is, despite the fact that they targeted uh, Muslims and Arabs after 9-11, uh, the ratcheting up of the, um, you know, the Patriot Act and uh, the NDAA under Obama later, more black men went to prison during the um, post 9-11 period, when the surveillance state, the surveillance state expanded, um, you know, with all of the powers of the, and tools of the state, be clear that even in the Arab hunting period of 9-11, black men ended up being the main ones who were in prison. Just like during the era of China, all this Asia hate, the main people who've been violently attacked during the period of Asia hate is black America. The period... The period who were targeted during the Arab, you know, phobia or, or fear of Arabs and the reaction to Muslims in this country targeted black men. So a lot of times, regardless of what the cause is, um, if the state is mobilized, it somehow disproportionately comes after our people. Um, even when it talks about immigration, right, when we compare, you know, the reaction to Haitians compared to others, whether Democrat or Republican. So we've seen that. Um, and so, yeah, so 9-11... You know, brings out brings up a lot for black people specifically. If you remember, Al Sharpton very you know sharply criticized uh, Giulia, Rudy Giuliani and said that you know Giuliani didn't do anything to be celebrated as America's mayor. He said Bozo the clown could have got the country to unite behind uh, <laughs> you know 9/11, and and so 
it turns out both both of the clown ends up with more dignity than Rudy Giuliani has had since. <laughs> uh, you know, let me ask you this though, because you said the black people were, were black men, especially were, were were targeted after nine eleven. Were these black, just regular African American, just regular black men, I should say, yeah, or were yeah, they going yeah. after black Muslims? But these weren't these weren't political brothers. These weren't Muslim brothers and political brothers. Some of them might have been because if you remember. On the day of 9-11, let's talk about that. On the day of 9-11, I remember specifically watching, and it was a Fox News, and Fox News said the Nation of Islam blew up the Twin Towers. I don't know if anybody else remembers that, but that came out. The, the first wow. announcement on that morning, they said that immediately they said it was the Nation of Islam, and then they backed off and never said it again. I hope somebody can call in to bear witness to that, because I definitely experienced that. Um, uh, it was Fox News. It was a short clip with some, you know, a white male reporter. He said it, and I was like, "What?" And then I never heard it again. Um, and so that's, you know, and I wonder, you know, what what that was. Was that, you know, as you say, did it target black men in organizations? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, even when you come up to the point of Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions is going after black identity extremists that he made up in his own head. Meanwhile, the police and the FBI, uh, the Department of Justice, was telling us that there's an infiltration of white, you know, uh, reactionaries who have joined the military and, and joined police forces. And Jeff Sessions eliminated all the consent decrees around the country to make sure that police are allowed to be free to, be, to abuse us. And so um, even though 9-11 was about Muslims and Arabs, they, want, you know, they did focus on black Muslims. And there were 2,500 Muslims picked up within 24 hours. Uh, 2,500 Muslims were picked up within 24 hours of 9-11, because I wrote an article, I published an article on it, talking about uh, being Arab after 9-11 as a kind of new blackness. Like these Arabs, you know, who would always look down on the nation of Islam for decades, the Muslim Arabs who claim to be Orthodox Sunni, would come to America, sell us liquor and drugs and stuff, but preach down the nation of Islam, that the nation of Islam is teaching, uh, you know, haram, and the nation of Islam is, a, is, is ungodly, right? And, and yet, that's because they were over there in the Middle East, you know, where they're Arabic, right, where they dominate everything. But when they come to America, they suddenly become a, a, a racialized minority, even though Arabs are white. They still are a racialized white minority. There are a lot of white people in Eastern Europe that are not considered white by other white people, for the record. But the Nation of Islam um, was criticized and still condemned for its teachings in relationship to race and Elijah Muhammad's racial doctrines, the ones that Malcolm renounced. The Arabs have always condemned. But when they came to America after 9-11, they had to now reconcile the reality that as Muslims, race is a big issue in America. And they would not give the nation of Islam the respect and credit for dealing frontally with racism as a part of their teachings. But now you come here as a Muslim in America and you're subject to being racialized or stigmatized. Now you understand why the nation of Islam had to come up with a racial theory to deal with the realities in America because you're, you're not in Saudi Arabia anymore. You're not in Jordan anymore. You know, you, you, you're not over in... Um, you know, Libya anymore. You are in Alabama or you're in New York or you're in Chicago. And for that, re and for that reason, um, you know, Arabs have had to moder moder moderate some of their criticisms of the nation of Islam because 
they now understand the racial reality of America that the Nation of Islam was taking on front, frontally. Yeah, hold that thought right there. Interesting. I learned something this morning. 14 after the top there. We've got to take a quick break here. We come back, though. Let's de- deal with reparations, Dr. Taylor. Uh, and Dr. King, you said, uh, talked about reparations before his demise. Oh, yeah. We'll get into that. Folks, you want to join this uh, conversation, reach out to us. 800-450-7876. That's the access to get you in. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. Good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. Our guest is black politics expert, Dr. James Taylor. We're going to talk about uh, reparations momentarily. And Dr. It started with Dr. King, what he said back in 63. But before we do that, Anita's joining us from Chapel Hill. has got a question for Dr. Taylor. She's on line one. Good morning, Anita. You're on with Dr. Taylor. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, you're on the air. Good Go ahead. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, I want to know what's the difference between the people that committed suicide to bomb the Twin Towers than the guy that was in Dollar General not too long ago that intended to go to the university and just terrorize. Oh, excuse me, I shouldn't use that word. He intended to go to the uh, university but was deterred, and he couldn't do that. So he went to Dollar General, and he shot some black people and then committed suicide. Would you happen to know the difference between why one is not legal and one is legal? Well, I mean, the difference is, you know, 22 years is a difference. There's a 22-year difference between the two incidents. Um, But I think you can draw a line between the mentality of a person who would do all of the evil that was done on 9-11 and do all the evil we've been seeing ever since 9-11. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about somebody going into a club and shooting up a bunch of gay people or somebody going into a club and shooting up a bunch of black folk every weekend. And, and that's what we need to start talking about. We need to start attacking the black violence against black people. We need to start shaming them the way we shame, you know, each other about not dressing nicely, you know. Uh, but back to your point. Um, the suicide, you know, 9-11 mentality, again, you know, people are, are full of conspiracy theories as to what really happened there, you know, and there, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And so as long as you have unanswered questions, it's going to drive conspiracy. But I think you can draw a clear line between the, men, the, the mentality of these people because um, there's been a lot of uh, thought about the religious right in America, how they're very similar to the Taliban or to the Mujahideen or to, um, you know, whoever the, you know, the 9-11 hijackers, uh, Bin Laden and his, his beliefs, the Wahhabi, Wahhabism. Um, you know, there's a lot of connection between religious, the religious fundamentalists of America who support MAGA and who are part of this racist coalition in America. So, the, yes, there's a direct connection. In other words, the fundamentalism of the terrorists that took down the buildings is no different than the fundamentalism of these sick racists who are going around targeting black people. You know, you know and so I think that's what is, is, is something to think about is the heart of the person that would be a coward and attack innocent people. Um, in 9-11, they, you, know, you know, I think it was uh, Bill Maher with his stupid self, uh, talked about how courageous they were by taking the planes, you know, and taking them over. People have forgotten that, you know, because he's a white man. He can get away with saying that. Um, 
you know, he talked about the, the, the hijackers weren't uh, cowards. They were courageous because they took all these planes down with box cutters and things of that sort. But the truth is, it took an evil heart, an evil diabolical scheme, you know, rooted in religious extremism. And I think what we're seeing amongst these white folk in America, we're seeing, uh, it's called dominionism. Um, and dominionism is the Christian version of the religious extremism of the of the of Muslims. So if the Muslim uh, form of terrorism has a name uh, rooted in um, you know uh, fundamental uh, Muslim uh, beliefs, then the, the connection is that these uh, Christian fundamentalists are are here in America, and many of them are these young white boys running around with AR-15s. Uh, Dylan, uh, Dylan Booth, that little devil, and, and I'm glad one brother, he's at least one that got, you know, one of our people have gotten to, because uh, they got him in jail at one point and beat him, beat him up really good. Uh, 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 you know, George Zimmerman still walking around laughing at us as a people, but um, you know that that's the reality that um, you know mo- many of these white terrorists, or many of those white boys that were at. Um, you know the rich, the Richmond uh, protest talking about the Jews will not replace us. You know that's religious. That's that's anti. It's not just anti. You know Jewish in terms of uh, you know racial hate for Jews. It's also theological. And so when they say the Jews will not replace us, they're speaking as Christians. These white people in America see themselves as Christians, and we got to remember that. So when you see them acting out in violence, these are Christians acting out in violence. These aren't atheists. These aren't un, these aren't people that don't read and believe in Jesus. These white people wake up believing in Jesus and killing Negroes, and they've been doing it for two hundred and fifty years. So why are we surprised that they still do it, or that they have a new doctrine uh, in a new era with new technology to link to their old ancient racist beliefs? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Can, can I say one more right. thing? Right. Okay. Go ahead, Anita. Black men were not ever fathered by the, the white taskmasters, but treated as who knows what, not a family member. How can you get mad if a black man only has one parent that's at work and he's left to roam the street because he has nobody to watch him if the grandparents wasn't available and they get into trouble with other men and that becomes a way of life for them. And the white man never came back to father the children that he ruined by not fathering them for years. So I'm not mad or apologize for black men doing some of the things that they do. They never been taught by a man. The white man never did his job as a father. He can't just pump children in the earth and then expect the black man to take care of them. I mean, who was he? Hold your stuff right. in your pants, and then you'll have to worry it, about it, that. It, 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 his name was Thanks, Tom, his Edina. name was Tom, his his name was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> 
and, and a whole bunch of other devils. Um, I mean, Carl, the truth is, I wish I had more lifetime to live. I wish I had another 100 years to live because to really get to how evil what the black men and women and the Indians have experienced in this land, it, it, we don't have enough time. Du Bois took up 90 years and gave us as much as he could. But, you know, he could only go up to 1963 where he, where he passed on the day that King gave the I Have a Dream speech. So that's the connection to our topic. But, you know, just for example, Carl, just, just the routine evil that our people experience. Shirley Sherrod, the black woman who, was, uh, who Obama fired on the freeway, who worked for, the, I think, the Agricultural Department, when she was trying to help white men, Fox News covered her and said she was being racist, but she was actually trying to help white men who were being neglected. She uh, was fired by Obama on TV on the freeway. Shirley Sherrod. And this sister had long roots in the civil rights movement. Her whole family had roots in the civil rights movement. A white man walked up to her daddy when he tried to vote in front of the city uh, hall steps and blew her father's face off. That's just, so that's what I mean. How do we tell that story? How do we get that in the books? When we got devils like uh, um, Kathy Hughes had in the opening, he, uh, you know, a, a bigot down in Florida trying to erase our history, and in Texas, a man in a wheelchair trying to ruin our history, right? So, you know, um, uh, you know, for me, it, it's just like, you know, when I look at, um, you know, how much has happened. For example, again, um, Bill Russell, the great NBA player, he, he used to be at my school at USF in San Francisco. I'm at Bill Russell's school. So I know Bill Russell's history. I've been there for 25 years, so I've learned his history. And I've learned, and you can Google it if you don't believe me, that his mother was so beautiful and that one day she went out dressed up. Please Google it. And Bill Russell's mother was so attractive that all the white women couldn't handle it in public and the white men uh, couldn't take it because she was too attractive. So they made her down dressed. They made her take off her clothes in public. Bill Russell's mother. Then his father prior to that had been trying to get gas one day and white men were in front of him at the gas, at the, what they used to call the filling station. And when he decided he no longer wanted to wait, he was going to back up and leave. And the sheriff or white man, gas station owner, walked up to Bill Russell's father, put a gun to his head and said, and if you move, I'll kill you. Now, that's just everyday white racism. The green book, how to avoid it, right? I mean, our whole history is like a bunch of Africans in the jungle being afraid of the colonists who have taken over our land. And we're running constantly in America. Carl, black people have not stopped moving. Listen to me, please. From 1870, immediately in the post-slavery era, the post-war era, black people have migrated for a century. We have still not found a home outside of the South. We went from 1870 to 1970, a hundred years of black migration from the South. I mean, I'm sorry, from the South to uh, Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, uh, to the, you know, uh, right? And then the second wave is 1900s with Garveyism. Everybody goes up North and goes out West. And then you have the World War II migration because of the, you know, the civil, uh, the, the, um, the, you know, the, the, the war front, uh, Kaiser shipyards out here in California. Um, and, and so, you know, it's really, you know, a phenomenal thing when you think about, you know, um, the experiences of everyday black people 
cannot be documented. And I just gave you three examples of brutal violence to two black people who, who, who gained some notoriety. Bill Russell, of course, gained great notoriety. But, but Shirley Sherrod is known in black civil rights circles. And the, the whole CBC knows her, for example. And they know her father's history. And those are the kind of things that everyday black people went through. My grandfather, um, my great-grandfather, uh, one time they stole, a white man stole his horse, his donkey. A white man took his mule. And he went to go get his mule. And my grandfather carried a gun, a shotgun. And the sheriff told my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, that you can't beat him, you can't kill him, because they'll lynch you. But you can put down that gun and whoop his A. And my grandfather did and took back his, 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 uh, his horse. My point is, black people in America have been uh, subjected to two and a half centuries of ongoing pressure. We've not been relieved of being black in America. I love being black, and I know there are those of you who don't like that label. Fine, use your own. But my point is, I love being who we are in America. But the tragedy is white people are still so sick with racism that they can't do anything to help themselves. I mean, I, I spoke last night at a prominent lecture in San Francisco, and I was one of three black people in the room speaking about reparations, Martin Luther King, the very topic we're talking about this morning from 1963 to 2023. And, and I looked at them, and I asked these white people, and they were all older. You know, the youngest might have been 40, 50. I said, how is it that you can hold the same view in 2023, that your racist great-great-grandfather held in 1860, 1870, 1890, And hold that thought there, Dr. Taylor, because I know we want to hear with their response and because the folks want to talk to you, but we got to take a short break and get caught up with the news, traffic and weather in our different cities. And when we come back, please finish that story for us. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. James Taylor, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us all morning long. I guess he's the black politics expert from the University of San Francisco, Dr. James Taylor. Get back to him in a moment. Let me just remind you, some of the other folks are going to be speaking uh, with us this week, including uh, from Baltimore, Dr. Tyrone Powers, also futuristic researcher, Brother Sadiqa Bakari, Maryland State Senator Jill Carter, uh, Quanta creator, Dr. Marlana Kringle will be here, along with motivational speaker, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. So let's go back to uh, Dr. Taylor. So Dr. Taylor, but last night's event, you know, because some people, yeah. when they get around white folks, you know, black people, they get mealy mouth. You know, they lose. They 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 they, they, they don't want to offend the oppressor. But yeah, well, you took it straight I, I, to him. Yeah, I said I said before I said it like you know, good Christians before they cuss you out, they say, "Now I'm just going to tell you this out of love." You know, that's what whenever somebody uh, pull you aside in the church and say, "Brother, I just want to share it with you this out of love," you know, a point is coming. And so I told them, "Yeah, I don't mean to offend you all," but I said, you know, um. 
ask yourself, how is it that your position in this room right now is the same as it was of your, of your racist, your racist great, great grandfather? I asked them that. And I said to them, I know my great, great grandfather believes what I believe today. And I believe what my great, great grandfather believed and my grandfather believed and my great, great grandmother believed and my grandmother believed about reparations, whether they understood it and had an education or had a political position, I don't know. But I know black people's natural reaction to slavery was to ask for land. That's all they wanted, 40 acres and a mule. When they were asked by General Sherman and the Secretary of State, Seward, who was under Lincoln after the Civil War, because they tried to kill Seward the night they killed Lincoln, they shot him. He got stabbed in a hotel, the Secretary of State did. In fact, um, they said, there were 20, 20 men met with Sherman and Seward down in Savannah, Georgia. And they asked him, what do you want? And 20 men uh, 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 voted for one man to be their spokesman, and he was a pastor. And when they said, what do you all want? How can we help you all make it here in America? He said, we just need land, and we'll do the rest. And white America, even though this ain't their land to give because they stole it, took over it legally and therefore you know, hold lease or whatever the contract language is. And, um, you know, when we talk about reparations, the first thing white people talk about is money. And that's how they try to discourage it. But the truth is, we didn't ask for money originally. We asked for land. When the economy changed and when we, we became less independent as farmers and became, you know, urbanized and became more uh, dependent on wage uh, earning, you know, in factories or, you know, other, you know, places that would let us work, reparations became less and less of a, of a demand. But people need to understand, there's a book called My Skin is Black is True by Mary Frances Berry, who worked under the Clinton administration for the Justice Department and is otherwise a respected black woman scholar, legal scholar. Her book is on Callie House. This woman should be as famous as Ella Baker. Um, as famous as Rosa Parks, she should be as famous as Harriet Tubman in every black person's consciousness. Um, she was the sister who joined, listen to this, she didn't lead it. There was a, a grassroots movement of 300,000 black people in Memphis organized around reparations, 300,000. Martin Luther King may have had 2,000 people following him on a good day. 300,000 people were signed up in Memphis. They arrested Callie House and Reverend Isaiah Dickinson. He dies. Um, they arrested them, though, and they put her in jail for nine months. Callie House, the federal government did. And it went to the Supreme Court. Most people don't know there has been a Supreme Court case on reparations in America. And it was around Callie House. Callie House sued for $68 million for seven years as a slave. And um, what the rationale call was the federal government, you, the union, was going to take all of the cotton money, the cotton rather, from the Confederacy that they found, and they taxed it, and it came up to $68 million. And they were going to, the United States Army and government decided, we're going to give the $68 million to the wounded veterans and their wives. So Callie House rose up and said, wait a minute, we picked all that cotton, all $68 million worth of this cotton that's in the Confederacy. Not one white hand picked one piece of cotton ever. So that's ours. And she sued for it, and, they, and, they, and, and then she lost in the case, uh, obviously, um, 
And uh, they eventually, uh, the post office, the postal master, went after her under some false mail fraud scheme. And they tried to say she was selling false hope. But the truth is, the government saw it as a threat. And, be, and listen to this very carefully. The same tax, I mean, the same mail um, uh, fraud issue they used against Callie House, they used it 20 years later against Marcus Garvey and brought Garvey down with it. And people don't know that. They did it on a woman first. They did it to Cali House in Memphis, and then they did it to Garvey up in Harlem. And most people don't know that. But if you get Mary Frances Berry's book, you'll be able to educate yourself to who Cali House was, what that movement was, how it wasn't looking for some charismatic personality like Martin Luther King or Malcolm. It wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on everyday people organized on the ground with their own commitments, and then Cali House joined it, and then she became its leader, and then they, 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 they brought her down. Um, but the movement continued on, and then it got picked up in the Garvey movement by Queen Audley Mother Moore, and Queen Mother Moore, you know, and the Republic of New Africa continued to promote reparations uh, on the nationalist column from that point on. But then when King comes along, you know, because part of what I was talking about last night was, you know, the extent to which King was always re making reference to history. Like, white folk want Martin Luther King for six minutes, and that's it. It's like Dougie Fresh, the rapper. You know, I say six minutes, Dougie Fresh, you're on, 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 on. Well, that's what they do with King. You get six minutes of us liking you, and that's your I Have a Dream speech. 13 years in the public from 55 to 68, but we want you for six minutes, Martin. And when we, use, when we get you for six minutes, Martin, we really only need about a half a second because the only thing we find useful in your speech, this is white folk talking to King, is when you say, you hope that your kids are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I really wish Martin Luther King, and I said this last night to these white folk, had never said that. He, I really wish he had not. Because it's the one thing they've hung on that they've used against us. It's like a reverse logic. They say, yeah, Martin said, you know, we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. So you shouldn't get affirmative action. You shouldn't get anything because you're black. And, and King's words, we have been used against us for 30 years, 40 years, 60 years, right? In fact, Michael Dyson's book, I May Not Get There With You, talks about that fact, that Martin Luther King's uh, content of character statement in the speech has been used against black folk by the conservative movement, and they continue to use it. There's Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, the, uh, the, the brother Tim Scott, um, Nikki Haley, all these people are running around trying to, you know, co-opt Martin Luther King's words. But I said this last night, too. I ain't never heard, but I've been speaking on Martin Luther King for 40 years, since I was 16. Carl, do you know I've never had one time in my life somebody asked me to speak on April 4th? I've always been asked uh, uh, for, you know, Martin Luther King's birthday speeches, but never one on April 4th when he died. And there's so much surrounding his death that is so deep, because when he, before he died, all of the national media, Martin Luther King was unpopular. He was unpopular with 90% of whites and about 65% of black folk were against Martin Luther King. A majority of blacks were against King in 67 and 68 when he died. And so this idea that they've, you know, like, like a fishbone, taken King and eaten the meat and then thrown the bone out or, 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 you know, or vice versa, they've, you know, they've taken what part of King they want to use against us. And they've done it very effectively. But this race-neutral, race-blind idea that King offers when he says, content of skin, you know, color of skin, content of character. But what's really interesting, Carl, 
if, if you listen to I Have a Dream speech and just go back or, or read it or, 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 or listen to it briefly, the first five minutes, Martin Luther King opens with slavery. He, the first thing he says, four score and 20 years ago. That's an immediate reference to slavery. He talks about a great American and who footsteps we stood, Abraham Lincoln. Then he says 100 years later, that's, there it is again, that's slavery. The Negro is still not free in 1963, in 1963 from 1863. So Martin Luther King is talking about slavery in the dream. He's not talking about feel-good uh, integration. He's, he's telling the country there's going to be more bloodshed in his preamble when he first starts talking if the conditions aren't improved. But then he also says we have come here to cash a check. And he talked about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution being that check. And, and there was a promissory note that those two documents promise every American. He says, yes, black men as much as white men, King does. Right? And, and then he talks about the check five times and stays on it. He don't back off. He opens up the, the message with, with slavery and a check. That's how the I Have a Dream speech opens up. Please go look at it. It opens up with slavery and a check associated with slavery and a bounce check for it. That's the beginning of I Have a Dream. And they have softened that speech in such a way that it's almost innocuous now because everybody can cite it, but they won't deal with the check. They talk about the dream. And the deep thing is, way before King talks about the dream in that speech, the dream is funded by the check. And what America wants is King's dream, but they don't want to fund that reality. And that's what reparations is. So we can draw a direct line from Queen or the Mother Moore to Martin Luther King and Malcolm, because she mentioned both of them at one point. And I think we don't understand that Martin Luther King was as black conscious as Malcolm X ever was. Malcolm had nothing on Martin Luther King in terms of blackness or black consciousness. Malcolm's militancy don't make him blacker than King. King was a true militant. So was Malcolm. But if you look at King's record, he went to an all-black college. He married a black woman. He had a black church. He had a black organization that was not integrated, SCLC. He went to black uh, Morehouse and, and, um, and, and belonged to Alpha Phi Alpha. There was nothing integrated about Martin Luther King's life in reality, outside of his advocacy. And so I think we need to recognize that you can't have Martin Luther King's dream without the check that he talks about before he gets to the dream. And a lot of white folk have gotten used to this soft Martin Luther King, this innocuous King, this content of character, color of skin King, but they don't want to deal with the check King or King the check. And that's the problem of America. Right. America. And hold on thought there, Dr. Taylor. We've got to take a short break. And we've got a bunch of folks from across the country. Well, seven minutes away from the top of the hour. If you want to speak with Dr. Taylor, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. Many to have your top there with black politics expert, Dr. James Taylor. Taylor, again, I've got a bunch of folks from all across the country. Just make your question shorter if you're on hold. So, Dr. Taylor, if you can respond, uh, just give a brief response. We'd appreciate it as well. Okay, let's start with line two. Brother Carlos is calling from Waldorf. Uh, Brother Carlos, your question or your comment for Dr. Taylor? Good morning, my dear brothers, and uh, appreciate you taking my call. Uh, 
Dr. Uh, Taylor, I just had really two quick uh, questions for you. Uh, one was Bill Russell uh, had a great legacy. Why would he uh, taint that by marrying up with a white woman at the very end and giving that all of our his treasures and so forth to that to the, to the white woman? And secondly, what do we do with the honorary whites? That rise among us. You touched upon Ramasamy and uh, and others uh, who come up into our community and try to tell us about our heinous history uh, and uh, try to take prominence over what we have gone through. Great question. Um, the first one, uh, I don't. I didn't know that Bill Russell married a white woman at the end. I had no idea. I I uh, I think I knew that actually. Actually, I did think I knew that, but I, for some reason, it just sticked to my head. I never met her. I know when his wife died, uh, uh, we had a black athletic director at the time, Debbie Gore, man. We got her from Stanford, and uh, she tried to reach out to Bill Russell about his uh, wife's death, and Bill Russell told the university not to uh, contact him. So he, he died alienated from the University of San Francisco. He forgave Boston. They burned down his house, um, and, 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 and he forgave the NBA, and he forgave everybody, but he wouldn't forgive USF because USF um, would not uh, endorse him in the state of California, where a white boy got supported at Santa Clara to win the California Best Player of the Year. Bill Russell won National Player of the Year with no support from the school, and he always resented that. And he also wanted to come back and complete a master's degree, and they wouldn't. And I've told the university, I've been there 25 years, it was the dumbest thing they've ever done. It's like, it's like having Michael Jordan at North Carolina. How much money do you think North Carolina has raised just by having Michael Jordan show up at a, at a cocktail dinner. Millions. So USF has lost millions and millions of dollars through alienating Bill Russell. But, again, um, I don't know what made him do that at the end. I guess it was love. Um, a lot of very black conscious men from his generation, if you look at a lot of the black nationalists uh, from, the 50, you know, from, the, from the 60s period who were born in the 40s, a lot of those black men, um, you know, like the stereotype link, um, the stereotype of um, – you know, the, the brother that played Link in um, I'm going to get you sucker, you know, when he comes out with his white woman, with his Afro, you know, his little white kid with the Afro and they like, they'll, they'll kill the white man, you know, that kind of stereotype. But it is true that there's a, there's a real history of black militant men marrying white women. Um, I'm going to the funeral service of a professor at Cal State. Um, he was a complete black nationalist, a militant black nationalist. I've been to his house. Everybody in his house looked completely white. His wife, his kids, his grandkids, and his daughters married white men, so they looked more white. And he's the only black person in his whole household. He died. Um, but I always found that strange. Uh, you know, men in their 60s and 70s and now 80s, for some reason, uh, you know, it, it might be a psychological thing. I'm not, that's not my background. But there is definitely a stereotype associated with black militants, you know, going from black power to white you-know-what. So that's the first question. The All second right. one is, the second one is the honorary whites. You know, you know, there's this whole phenomena of model minorities, and the Chinese are doing it too. The Chinese should be ashamed of themselves in America because black people have stood by them before they were even a people. We were there for them. In fact, Chinatown in America started in Negro Valley of L.A. Los Angeles, California is where the first Chinatown that came Chinatown ever came from in this country. The largest Chinatown in America is up here in the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland combined, right? So 
So the, and so California has the largest Chinese population in America. New York might be second. But, um, but you know, the Chinese, um, you know, they, they've gone against us for affirmative action. Like, they tried to pretend this Jewish dude, Bloom, this racist Jew in New York, uh, who won the case um, in the Harvard case, in the North Carolina case, that he also duped them. So they say that he, they got tricked. They got used in, at Harvard. You at Harvard, how you going to be? And, and it's a bunch of you. You got your organizations, and you, you lined up with this man. And the Asian community of, of, of Harvard, they ended up, you know, pretending that they didn't know what was happening. That's nonsense. But in California, they can't play that game. In California, the Chinese have moved against us in every major move we have. They are the majority in San Francisco. So that's why I have to talk about this, because they're a political obstacle to our reparations. And I have to talk about this Chinese group in, in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. I have a student who came to me about three days ago, last Thursday, and told me, how do you feel as one of the members of the reparations committee? I'm working in a city council member's office, and we've had 15 Chinese people come here today and tell us do not support the reparations agenda. Now listen to that. The Chinese are going into the city council halls, city, city hall to lobby against us, and we don't even know it. This little Chinese girl gave away a secret and told me this is what they're doing in, in, this, con- in this city councilman's office. So we got to deal with that, right? The Chinese funded opposition to affirmative action in California. So I'm going to get back to these other models, these other sellouts. They're not sellouts, these other people. But the Chinese, I'm talking about as a group, are quiet. They have no major organizational leaders out speaking against us. But they resent us because they think Asia hate was about black people because the media showed black young men attacking white uh, Asian people. And, of course, the majority of people that did that violence were not black. Um, and some of the Asian violence on, was Asian on Asian violence. And they won't talk about that. A, a few major incidents of mass shootings of Asians was from Asian individuals. And, um, and in fact, the most recent serious shooting of Asians was, was by an Asian man. And so the Chinese funded a million dollars in California to defeat affirmative action in 2020. And the funny thing is, Carl, I've said this before on your show, not one black celebrity athlete Political person, Maxine Waters, Barbara Lee, none of them stopped to do a commercial. Uh, you know, you could have gotten all kinds of black celebrities to do a pro-affirmative action commercial on the radio, KJLH in L.A. Guess what? Not one. Why? Because black people in California have been thriving without affirmative action since 1996. We got a, a black vice president. We got, you know, we helped put Newsom up in the, in, in, in the state house. You put Breed in the city council. And you got uh, uh, Karen Bass in L.A. You got someone in Compton. Black folk without affirmative action has still beat the odds in political power in this state because it's a sophisticated, you know, group of black people that live out here uh, in the West Coast. And that's how they keep winning, even without right. affirmative Eight action. Eight after the top day out. As I mentioned, we got a bunch of folks want to talk to you, Doc. Uh, Ramsey's up next. He's on line one calling from the district. Ramsey, your question for Dr. Taylor. Yeah. yeah uh, how you doing, Carl and Dr. Taylor? Dr. Taylor, I, I want to ask you about the reparations. I've suggested several times on on this uh, station that we need a class action lawsuit against the federal government demanding that we are, we have a free DNA test taken, free passports, visas back and forth to Africa in the names of all the former slave owners that kidnapped and enslaved our four hundred and sixty seven years ago and brought them to this country, fifteen fifty five. 
And I and I wanted to know wanted to know from you whether that you think it's a good idea to try to take our case along with the coronavirus, man made coronavirus to the United Nations and the world court to let the world know that that we we deserve reparation from every slave owner that 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 trade our ancestors. My last name is not yeah, thank you. Uh, the UN. Already, All right, let him respond, uh, Ramsey. Let's, let's give okay. him a response. Thanks, Ramsey. Yeah. Thanks for your call, uh, Dr. Taylor. This, this goes this goes back to 9/11. If you remember, the, the three weeks before 9/11, all summer there was a UN conference on race, xenophobia, and um, and uh, slavery, or something like that. I can't remember the third term, but it turned out to be a disaster. A woman had been murdered outside because they think they said she had AIDS, and inside. Israel and the United States took over the proceedings by before the conference began, the U.S. and uh, Israel delegates, 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 they asked Arab nations and African nations what their position was on Israel-Palestine. Before anybody mentioned Israel or Palestine, the Americans probed to find where people's positions were. And when they found out the African and Arab nations were not, you know, for this uh, israel you know, they wanted to change the statement about, you know, about racism. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it, 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 the United States under Bush withdrew because they were going to send Colin Powell over there. And that would have been a powerful moment in history that this descendant of slaves had gone over to Africa during the U.N. conference on race and spoken. But instead, when they polled those two, when they polled the Africans and the Arab nations, Israel and the United States pulled back, took back its prestigious delegacy delegates and sent um, low-level, mid-level delegates there and, and disowned it. And then it was so much outrage at, at the U.N. conference on race in Durban, South Africa, right before 9-11, that I've always understood. Because if you go back to it, the Arab nations were violently angry. And so were the African countries. It, it, it ended in turmoil. And in the meantime, India and um, uh, India and uh, uh, Pakistan were on the verge of going, you know, bombing each other because Clinton was trying to stop them. They were on the verge of bombing each other, right? So, so you know, you, you have all of this, you know, uh, unfolding um, at, at a particular time, you know, in, in our in our politics and all. All right, 11 after the top there. Let's keep moving. Let's go to Buffalo. Ross Jomo is waiting for us on line three. Good morning, Ross Jomo. Good morning. Hey, and at that same conference, Israel and America walked out before it was over, but that's before the, that's right. the, the declaration was declared. But the, I didn't call for that. I, I, something else, um, uh, yesterday, um, you know, that that's the, if people listen to that Martin Luther King speech, the 17 minute is the speech that they should look at. And uh, at one minute and 50 seconds is where he's talking about the history. And at four minutes and 27 seconds is where he's talking about the check coming back with insufficient funds. And he also right. talks about the importance and the power of now. Um, I was just right. suggesting that everybody read that last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. He wrote that book in Jamaica, and he, was, he had retired, and he was kind of going back there to reset his, his thoughts. And then he came back to America, and within a year he was killed. Um, but the, the point I, I wanted to really ask you was, how do you feel about, you talked about us moving from, 1870 and black people still moving around you you move you went from east coast west coast now black people are returning back to the south but they're not voting and some of these same mindsets of politics and controlling cities and towns and and legislative districts 
have not changed. How important is it for black people if they return to the South to get conscious and activated Absolutely. politically? That's the question. Excellent comments and excellent question. Um, I'll get right to it. Yeah, and I didn't finish my. Hey, you know what? Hold a thought right there, at, at, at Doctor Taylor. We're gonna take a short break. I don't want to break your rhythm, right. and, and you know, I want you to respond to Brother Ross Dilma's question about the South and and uh, educating our people in the South. Folks, you want to join this discussion with Doctor Taylor? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six. If you're on hold, please make your question short because a bunch of folks want to get to Doctor Taylor. But we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM ninety five point nine and. AM 1450 WOL where information is power. Good morning, again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. He's a black politics expert. And Dr. Taylor, I'll let you finish responding to uh, Ross Joma from Buffalo's question. That was a great question. And uh, I wanted to finish off and say, we really, it wasn't just from 1870 to 1970, continue from 1970 to 2023. So you could really say from 1870 to 2023, black people have not stopped migrating. Look, from 1870 to 1970, we spent 100 years of moving from the South to the Midwest to the Far West. And then since 1970, after the movement, after all that struggle, black folk gradually and slowly moved back South we always had 60% of blacks were, were Southern, 40% left in the two major migrations. But now, like the brother said, they're going back. Black folk, we're growing as a population from 45 million to 75 million people in the next 30 years. And we're also becoming increasingly more Southern than, than any time since the early migrations. So blacks are intentionally going back South like they intentionally left. They want better schools. They want affordable housing. They want you know, public health. They don't want anything special. They just want better than what urban life in Chicago and Detroit and, you know, the, the big cities uh, have given us for the past 40 to 50 years. And so they're moving back. So that's something to think about. Black people have never stopped migrating in America. And most black people don't understand that. From 1870 to 20, 2023, there's a pattern of constant movement all over this country trying to make this place our home. And it, it never really has been quite that to us. I think to answer his question about what should be done, I think you have to look at the models of Stacey Abrams in Atlanta and in Georgia, and T- Latasha Brown and uh, Black, Vote, Black Voters Matter, um, and, uh, and Brother Cliff Albright from New York, who I met. Uh, they are outstanding examples of how young Black people committed you know, to their ancestors. Because Tasha Brown, like I said about Bill Russell and Shirley Sherrod, Tasha Brown had a case where her grandmother and grandfather were denied the right to vote for most of their lives. And the, her granddaddy used to carry a poll tax receipt in his pocket. I just looked up on her wiki page. Um, uh, he, his, her granddaddy used to keep a poll tax in his pocket just to remind him. Well, that's what is motivating his granddaughter right now. And, and she says her grandmother was a soulmate. And, and, and for that reason, Latasha Brown from the Black, Motor, um, black Voter Vote Matters, they were the black folk down in Georgia who had the bus and drove all around and, and registered people and help people get to the polls. So that's the kind of work that needs to be done. The kind of work that Latasha Brown is doing, that uh, Stacey Abrams is doing, that Black Vote Matters is doing, the LA uh, Black Lives Matter is well organized. I think we have to, like I've always said on your show for many years, focus our activity locally in terms of our actual feet on the ground organizing and send your money elsewhere. Like, like, 
We have to understand that what happened in Georgia in 2020 when Trump was defeated was the result of the black migration back south. There were 200,000 more people in 2020 than had been there in 2016. So when Trump won, there were 200,000 less black folk in Georgia. But when he lost, there were 200,000 more. And that, that's a part of that black migration that's happening. To answer that brother's question, we got to do that in every county. We have to sue. Uh, you know, we have to continue to sue at every uh, challenge all the time. We got to get the ACLU, the NAACP, any other sympathetic organizations to always sue whenever they see, uh, you know, corruption. Just like what happened in Harvard. After Harvard, the Harvard case, affirmative action being put out the door for the first time ever, Black people use affirmative action to sue. And that's what we have to do. Look at, look at what happened to the Harvard case. A group of blacks and organizations are now suing Harvard for the fact that most of them white kids that's at Harvard ain't qualified to be at Harvard. And that's the real discrimination and the real affirmative action of Harvard. And, and black folk are suing. We got to challenge every redistricting district uh, that is unfavorable, all the gerrymandering. Look, our ancestors used to get required to know how many jelly beans were in the jar when they came to vote. You saw this in the movie Selma with Oprah. You know what we did? We went to the same hardware store and the same candy store, our people, filled the jar up, counted the jelly beans, told our people to go to the poll and told them how many jelly beans was in the jar and outsmarted the devil. And that's what we have to do. We have to organize locally at every uh, uh, venture. Stop thinking about big ideas like I have a dream or black power or Black Lives Matter, organize locally in your town because it's your town where your people live, where you want clean water, where you want your children to be able to walk down the street safe. Wherever black people are becoming majorities or pluralities in the South, we've got to put, put pressure on the Republicans to loosen up. That's what black migration does. The more blacks move South, the more the Republicans are going to have to become less racist and less red. They might try to double down and become more, and that's more likely, but the, eventually, the numbers of black people, if they challenge politically these, these illegal districts or these, un, un, you know, these gerrymandered districts, then black people can moderate racism. The more we're down there, the more they have to liberalize. The police can't just go around killing if they know there are electoral consequences and other kinds of local consequences. So I think that's the strategy. The strategy is everywhere black people are locally, that's where they should be organizing around those issues that are directly current present and um and long-term impacting their communities all right 25 at the top of the hour let's move on and let's go to line five johnny's waiting for us calling from long beach in california johnny you're on with uh dr taylor and thanks for taking my call good morning dr Taylor. how are you doing i'm doing great brother okay you know dr dr taylor um i'm a yankee fan and at the yankee stadium this weekend that they had a that these people had a during you know um at the seventh inning they do a um um God, God bless America yeah and and do you know that these people had a banner saying Trump or death yeah you know well and uh but but I want I want to uh in pleasure you pleasure you pleasure you. In Oklahoma, they're going to start teaching that that curriculum to to kids in, in some schools around around the country. And I, I wonder, I don't know if you're aware of it, or, or, or you know, um, it's something that you might look into. You know, uh, and why would they be 
you know, they got CRT, which wasn't being taught in schools. But they, you know, President U has this thing about slavery and how slavery right. was worldwide. Okay, have you right. have you ever seen that? I don't think so. Not like that. But I, of course, I'm aware. But I, I don't think so. McDonald's is not new to chicken, so maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy, juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Okay, I just want I just want to give you some throw some things out there, and maybe you can look into them next time you, if you find them interesting. Maybe you can come back on and talk sure. about it. You know, sure. Uh, All right. Thanks, Johnny. It. All right. Uh, take care. All right. Yeah, twenty-seven at the top. Yeah. Go ahead. Doc. This, this, idea, this idea of Trump or death is you know is is new and it's a uh, a pitch and they're going to try to run it. These are ignorant people who've lost and lost and lost and lost. They keep losing. Let them let them keep running with Trump. But they've lost every night since he's won. The night he won, he lost the, the popular vote, and he ain't won since. So keep playing with Trump and keep losing. I don't care how old Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is racist enough for these racist white folk who vote for Trump otherwise to vote for Biden. And, and that's true. A Biden, like I said, is racist enough for the races that would normally vote for Trump to vote for Biden. They had to choose between two old races. And, and some white folk, the majority, said we'll go with Joe instead of Trump. So, you know, the, the idea that Trump is gaining momentum through a bunch of convictions is insane, what we're seeing. And um, this thing is not going to play out like people think it is. But the idea that, you know. Uh, but, well, let me interject and ask you this, Dr. Taylor. So, so how do you explain the fact that he's gaining in popularity in, in some circles among blacks and brown, especially the younger group? The media, the media, the media in general, but broadcast mainstream media, MSNBC, uh, CNN, Fox. To, in fact, Fox is dealing with Trump less than MSNBC and CNN is. Think about this. CNN gave Trump a town hall meeting after he was convicted of rape. I mean, CNN is sick. What they did, all of these national media have revived this devil after January 6th. They did this. They did it on purpose. And you know they did it because when he first did it, they were no Trump for months, for about a month and a half. Then all of a sudden it was Trump, 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 Trump. So these devils have created this monster. They did this. And they're doing it again because they're making so much money off of Trump and the, 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 the coverage. They're charging everybody more for commercials during this, this campaign. Look, Trump got $3 billion in free ad buy time in 2016. That means media gave this man $3 billion in co- free coverage when he won the, uh, the, 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 you know, in, in 2016. They're giving him free coverage now as a criminal. If he was black, let me ask you that question. Does anybody, anybody, anywhere listening to me think that if Trump was Obama, that this would be happening? Hell no. We know what this is. White people always find a way to make peace with each other to keep us in our place. That's what this is. They always reconcile. With the Civil War, what happened? The white South and the white North got together and put us in the back of the bus for 70 years. What happened recently when Dominion 
to Fox. They could have taken Fox off TV forever if they wanted to. What happened? Them white folks said, no, we don't want to destroy these white folks. But these white folks hate us and are driving the hate in America, and the liberals could have killed Fox literally off TV. They said, no, we, we don't want to do that. So I don't think we should trust anybody. I think we should have the mentality of John Henry Clark. We have no allies. We have no friends. Don't believe in any coalition, unless it's an all-black coalition of people you already, you know, got, got uh, you know, connection to. Because, um, you know, the times we're living in, you know, there are a lot of political games being played. And, and you know, if, if, if it's Trump or death, then let it be death. Because um, that one girl said that, you know, on January 6th, and that brother gave her death. Um, and so, you know, these people want to play around with this, but the reality is, um, you know, uh, the idea of Trump or death at the Yankee game, you know, if that was a black power sign, do you think they would have let, let that be out? Let, let's say if that was BLM, since we're a little bit closer to BLM. Do you think if that was a sign that said Black Lives Matter, it would have ever made it out? Hell no. So be clear. These white folks are playing with fire Trump, and as long as they make a profit, it, it, you know, and we know who they are, really. Um, they, they, they don't care what they do. The, the, the Jewish community in Hollywood does not care about what they do to us, how they cover Trump and what this is creating. And they are the ones behind it. And they're going to continue to do it, hiding their hand, calling anybody who calls it out anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, they own our culture. They are making whores our most popular young women in America. And then, and then they come around with this uh, and, and hide their hand the entire time. You know, so, again, I'm saying national media has propped Trump up again. So the idea that he's gaining in popularity is simply saying the media is covering Trump more and people are watching more of that coverage. But it don't translate into votes. Just because a poll or people watch or people are go to doesn't mean they're going to turn out and vote. And so. I think the biggest factor, the, 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 the number one variable in why Trump is resurging is media coverage. All right. Hold that thought right there. We're going to take another quick break and take our last look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. It's uh, 27 minutes away from the top. Yeah, you want to speak to Dr. Taylor, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, uh, black politics expert, Dr. James Taylor at the University of San Francisco. Before we go back to him, let me just remind you, some of the other folks are going to be stopping by this week include motivational speaker, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, uh, Kwanzaa creator, Dr. Malana Karenga, uh, Maryland State Senator Jill Carter, uh, futuristic researcher, Brother Sadiqa Bakari, and also Dr. Tyrone Powers uh, out of Baltimore. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio is locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM. 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Again, if you're on hold, please make your question short so we can get as many people uh, to question Dr. Taylor as possible. Uh, Brother Carl's in Palm Beach County, Florida, on line four. Brother Carl, your question for Dr. Taylor. Yes, how you doing, Sam? Uh, Dr. Taylor, right. my, thought process, my thought process is that when we hear our Pan-African brothers talk about the reality of the planet and that kind of ideology, uh, many times they don't understand the difference in the battles that are taking place inside of America, like we, what you were stating earlier. 
what are your thought processes as it relates to the battles and the war? Because like right now, the only people that I see that are being disrespected is those that are trying to make an attempt to identify themselves as the children of the slaves or the foundation of African-Americans. Right. And, and, and people disrespect us to the point where they don't realize many times that they are actually disrespecting us because from this station, the only people that I know usually call tell you don't talk about people unless they're present. But the Eidos uh, community and the foundational community, we're never really in the conversation. And my thought from you was how do you uh, center your thought process as it relates to trying to mend the fence or trying to re- um, make a relationship between the two entities, which both profess that they're uh, – trying to um, um, correct the ills that are on the planet. And I, that's my thing, because I know inside of America, we've been given this multicultural ideology. Yeah. And many yeah. times it don't provide those of us who are the children of the slaves. Like when you talk about the nation is Islam, that's what's um, differentiated the uh, honor of Elijah Muhammad, because in his, his illuminating book, the message to the black man, he dedicated it to the so-called American Negro. All right, let's give him a chance to respond, uh, Carl, because, you know, there's a lot of confusion here with those two groups who dislike the nation of Islam. And I think Carl's a member of the nation. Some people are just totally confused about these two groups uh, leading you the wrong way. But anyway, Dr. Taylor, I'll let you respond. How can you be a member of the nation of Islam and and support a group that doesn't like Minister Farrakhan? Blows my mind, man. I just don't understand you, brother Carl. But let's let's leave Dr. Taylor's the guest, so let's let's hear him respond. I I, I don't get it. I know it is deep, <laughs> but go ahead, Dr. Taylor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of confusion around these groups. Uh, I know the people, the major players, uh, I don't know them personally, but I know of them. Um, and I don't think, you know, there is any mending. Uh, you know, these are personalities. Tariq and uh, Yvette Carnell and these people have, you know, like Kevin Samuels did with dating when, you know, YouTube hit. These people have used the Internet. Uh, to develop followers, you know, at least Tyreek is on the ground in L.A. with a museum uh, of, that he's created and he's made films. Yvette works for some racist organizations and she's on the Internet bragging about money. And I don't even know if she's black. You know, she looked like Rachel Dolezal. And, and I've been on a TV, I've been on a radio program with um, uh, 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 Yvette Carnell together. And, you know, we generally agree in our conversation. But my point is, these people have their own money agendas. This is about money and ego. You know, Tariq, Nasheed, all day, I follow him on Twitter all day. He sits around and just makes negative comments about black people who are from Jamaica or the West Indies or Africa. And it's informed by powerful ignorance. And, and it's almost like Trumpism, MAGAism is the, is, is the, is the, you know, the permission slip. They got to be this way because if you listen to them, they sound as anti-African as white people do. And the truth is black reparations in America, black reparations in the West Indies, Black reparations in Africa is only going to happen when Africa rises up against Europe the way we see Niger responding to, to France and saying, get the hell out of our country. You are only blood-sucking us at this point, and our relationship is the same one we've had for 50 years, and we don't want it anymore. And that's what black America has to do with reparations and saying, we are tired of being the poor in this country. We want to change this relationship for good. And if we don't, then whatever comes, let it come. I said this to these white folks the other night, Carl. You said no to affirmative action in 96. You said no to affirmative action in 2020. You said no to 
to Prop 13, which is a property tax uh, bill that would allow houses, you know, a California property to pay for education in public schools and public services. So California says no to that, and now they're saying no to reparations. So then I say to them, you want to know why you all going to be scared leaving this building tonight? You know why when you leave this room, you're going to be ducking and hiding and running and looking and paranoid, fear that somebody broke your window or about to rob you or going to break in the store? All this stuff we're seeing in this society coming apart is intentional. Ronald Reagan took 55 trillion dollars say it with me people 55 trillion dollars is why there's fentanyl is why there's opioid crisis is why white people are having deaths of despair is why there is a crisis mainly in white america and black america ain't in the same crisis we're not we have our own things that we've always had but they are january 6th showed you their desperation and that has everything to do with right. them feeling like they've lost their country because the black man got elected, and, and now the country's browning, and now they've fallen apart. And the only thing that they have that keeps them together historically is racism. That's the only thing that brings white people together in unity is white supremacy. Otherwise, white folks don't have much in common with each other. And that's a little dirty secret. Yeah. And they stay on code, as Neely Fuller has been teaching us. They stay on code, and we need to have our own code. For, for those yes, of you who were, you know, were supporting those groups, Dr. John says, we're always following something without studying its origins. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of the origins, because we don't even mention them, really. But you study the origins and then come back, and, and, and it's just mind-blowing. If you support Minister Farrakhan and you support those groups, they don't like Minister Farrakhan. They don't like Malcolm either. They call him names. And right. You, right. That's, it's, right. It's mind-blowing, man. Especially Yvette Carnell. I've heard I know. on Farrakhan. And, and again, this is the, when she talks, she spits the whole time, so I have a hard time watching her talk. I don't, uh, that's why I know I'm too old now, because I don't understand this phenomenon of how somebody who is practically white can come out of nowhere and open her mouth up and suddenly get a following, you know, and again, to me, it's, it's being funded by right-wing organizations. That's the thing. There you that's go. the thing that's dishonest, yeah. is they're being funded uh, by right-wingers. Both of them, and both groups. Idea. And she's that's got a white woman as her mate, you know. Right. So we right. don't want to talk about it because that's just, you know, Neely Fuller says, you know, if you can't say anything, just we don't talk about stuff like that. But, folks, just right. do your research. That's all. But anyway, we're going to keep moving because a bunch of folks still want to talk to you. 13 away from the top. Yeah? Brother Arthur is reaching out. He's in Connecticut. He's online, too. Brother Arthur, your question for Dr. Taylor or comment. Oh, again, another great show, Carl and Dr. Taylor. Boy, you covered so much. Uh, I'm going to keep it short. Um, the, the name of the book is My Face is Black is True uh, by Callie House. Uh, we Thank read you. it in uh, one of our book clubs. Um, thanks for bringing it up. Excellent, um, um, excellent um, bring, thing to bring up. And many of her people, towards the end of her movement, did go on to the Garvey movement. That's and right. carried on the same thing with reparations. And also... <clears throat> Can you give us just a brief update of uh, Black Lives Matter and their reorganization? Thank you so much. Uh, sure. Uh, and I want to be clear and put this out there because you're not going to hear this anywhere else because nobody else knows. But Father Divine, the, the popular preacher from Harlem in, in the 1920s, again, when he, when Garvey was deported, so Callie House's people went into Garveyism. When Garvey was deported, most of Garvey's people followed Father Divine in the peace mission movement in Harlem. 
Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement, Father Divine and the Peace Mission Movement was the first organization on record to both advocate for reparations in America for black folk since Cali House, and also Father Divine was the first to condemn Hitler and the Nazis in America before anybody else did. So Father Divine was right. a joke. As much as he's been made into a joke, he was no joke in 1920, and 1930, 1940. He was the second most powerful man in the country next to the President of the United States, Father Divine was. But, um, you know, I just want to make sure we got that in there. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think, yeah, you know, I, you know, Father Divine to me is just one of those examples. The Nation of Islam is another. They all are rooted in the same kind of, you know, cultural production that we've done, you know, uh, you know to answer our, you know, our needs. All right. 11 away from the top. Let's keep moving. Eric's in Forestville, Maryland, has a question for you. He's on line one. Eric, good morning. You're on with Dr. Taylor. Good morning, Mr. Carl Nelson. And thank you for taking my call. And thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Taylor, for your classroom today. Um, my question is, um, do you believe that this, that we as black people are headed into a civil war with these uh, devils? Uh, it's a little bit about my belief is because uh, the girl that uh, August the 24th down in, uh, in, in that township in Ohio was murdered right in front of our own eyes. And the police department stated, uh, we'll, we'll wait till all the facts are in. The facts is in right then and there. This young lady was murdered, uh, believing that she took some liquor out of a liquor store. And uh, so that's my question. Do we, you believe that we are headed for a civil war with these folks? And probably number two, do we need to get out of this country? Thank you for taking my mm. call. Mr. All right, thanks, Eric. Uh, I'll answer the, the second one first. No, because white people are dying out. By the time we start moving, uh, they're going to be gone. And that's what Howard Cruz projected a long time ago. Cruz said there might be a day when whites will flee to Canada or back to Europe, and we might go back to Africa. He said that. Theoretically, things could happen. And Cruz was a brilliant man like that. And, and he's one of the only people that could see that possibility because everybody else would laugh at it. But the reality is, with the population demographics beyond our movement for the past 150 years, everybody in America is growing. The only group not growing is whites. Everybody's having a, pop- a baby boom right now. White people are, are having a death. Again, Google the phrase death of despair, and you'll see it's a crisis amongst white people in their 40s through 60s in America. So I would say, no, there's not going to be a civil war um, because, again, people that do that talk ain't taking the military seriously. I mean, just go out and look at the military, a Navy ship, and you'll realize anybody with a little M-16 or AR-15, man, please. Farrakhan talked about how ill-equipped anybody in this country is to fight the American state. And nobody is, you know. Um, and even after January 6th, as vulnerable as this country seemed on that day, it wasn't because somebody overtook the military. It's because the military didn't show up. So I would say this. There's no civil war. We've been at war with them. We've been at war, and we've been at civil war. In fact, it's been more civil than war for 150, 200 years. And, and, and that's why I think organizations like the one uh, Carl gave uh, opportunity to talk before me today, um, you know, around Geronimo Pratt and the UEP Newton Gun Club, I think, just like the Black Migration South, everywhere South, Guns are as natural to black people in the South. They're not the same in the South like they are up in New York, where, you know, people use them for crime. It's a part of the culture. My great-grandparents had guns. My mom, my grandmama had a gun. And it was a part of being black in the South to protect yourself and to hunt. Um, I think we should organize militaristically. Yes. I think we have to organize militantly, like the group that was following the DJ, um, 
that, you know, the one that went down in Skokie, Illinois, I mean, uh, went down there in uh, I, I, Georgia uh, and confronted the Ku Klux Klan at their headquarters. Uh, they've been after that, brother, since. But, yes, we need black people to organize gun uh, groups, gun uh, self-defense groups with, with education, get law enforcement, black folks to help us, to educate us. Because, you know, like the spook who stood by the door, there are black, plenty of black cops who, who are also down for the community. Don't think all black cops are sold out. There are many black cops who are down for the black community and will train us if we get organized. But this can't be national. It has to be local. Do one thing in Philly, one thing in Memphis, one thing in Dallas, another thing in Oakland. Whatever fits Oakland, do in Oakland. What fits in Dallas, do in Dallas. What fits in, you know, what fits in Baltimore, do in Baltimore. But Baltimore may not fit Oakland, and Oakland don't fit Baltimore, so we don't need to be doing the same thing. Baltimore might have a, a more immediate crisis around guns and, and youth violence. Right? We, we, we all have that in common, but you get my point. Every response should be tailored to every reality that you are facing. Baltimore's realities right. are slightly different than Oakland's, even though they overlap. So I say, and Doc, we're just about out of time, but uh, I got a request from you. Uh, the, uh, one of our listeners says, uh, she says, you know that we were, but could you ask him again, why does a militant black man marry a white woman? I know we, we're out of time, so maybe you could do some research. The, the tweeter yeah. also says, I know he said that's not his research here, so maybe next time we come back, if you can address that, why does a militant black man marry a white woman? Doc, wow. so doc, I got some homework for you, but Doc, we got to run, so yeah. we're running late. Thank How you. can f- folks follow you on social media? Um, I'm on uh, uh, Instagram, James Taylor, 1699. All right. Thanks, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for sharing all this Thank information you. with us today. All right, folks, Take we're care. running out of time. We're out of time, actually. Stay strong, stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.